Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Evolved Idiots. Today, we have with us Jason Sheftel uh, to talk about China. Yeah. So welcome and thank you for coming in uh, and doing a, doing a live show. Yeah, or, thanks for having me. Or it should an in-person be show. Pretty, yeah, it should be pretty interesting. We got to do it face-to-face, which is always better. Yeah, it, it always is better. You know, it's it's uh, adds for a better conversation and... You know, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, interesting watching people get back to, you know, the mask transition here in California. I think yeah. there's a lot of other places I'm in the country so much, that so always point to us. I know. It's so rare. Well, for a long time, yeah, I kind of got to where I could, you know, it's interesting. You start to adapt and you start to like, because when people were first wearing masks, I was like, it's very difficult to tell who's who. But like, like to tell people apart. But then as you start to like get the mask, it's like you can start to read eyes and That's things much, much thinking. better. Yeah. Just when we were talking before, I saw you, you're, you're emoting, emoting so much with your eyes. I was very impressed. I was like, wow, that's a man who learned <laughs> what to do when the masks are on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Zoom, Zoom changed a lot of things as well. So let's let's talk a little bit. Um, let's for, I guess let's start off before we dive into because I've I'm I'm fascinated with China and really how it's affecting the whole globe and its its history because people act like China has is, is this rising power that's never affected the globe but the truth is it's a much longer history than the U.S. and it's affected the globe for <laughs> for centuries actually. But um, so so let's just start off and like tell people a little bit let's about your background and and uh, you know regarding China. Sure, yeah, this is always a always a good story. China's a, a big story, so I'll give you my my history real quick. I've been first just interest. I've been into China for whatever that means, probably for over twenty years. Yeah, and my interest was really kindled. It would probably start around nine eleven, and when the U.S. went to it went to war in Iraq in two thousand three. I remember thinking, wow, we have our country. I mean, our, our brilliant leadership is just randomly bombing countries in the Middle East. It's not going to solve these problems. It's creating a mess in a place like Iraq, which isn't going to become a democracy. I was th- seeing all this and in the background. I just thought, wow, we have a there's an enormous ancient, like you said, country that is way more complex, much larger that do we do people have a handle on it? Like, could I find things that would explain this country to me? And so it really kindled that from there. And yeah, and then I went to I went to college. I got a scholarship to study in Beijing, and I was there in 2011. I learned the language. Uh, I got, I mean, I went to one of the best universities in Beijing, and I was learning about transportation, about agriculture, about infrastructure, about all the different systems they were trying to develop to integrate their country into a modern country. And it was fascinating. I went. I traveled all around China. I've been to Tibet. I've been all wow, over, and, it was, nice. and it's a whole thing. And so that was over 10 years ago now. And what I'm doing now is I'm putting this story, I'm trying to explain the, the modern transformation we see, tie it back to what, like you said, this ancient culture, this ancient history, and sort of the, the role it's played in the world, and try to link the past to the present and explain a bit about what's coming with the future. Because there's huge changes. Like what we've seen with China just since 1980 is insane. But what we might see could be just as, just as crazy, if that's even possible. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always likewise been kind of fascinated. Well, I'm fascinated with all ancient histories and things all over the world. But China is interesting because it is the oldest of of cultures. You know, it goes all the way back and it's impacted the world in so many different ways. Um, but it is it is interesting watching how 
we've seen a meshing of of that authoritarian communism with capitalism like they seem to have figured out the right marriage of this and i'm not saying it's like the right way the way we want to live our lives but it's turned them into an economic juggernaut and we've really outsourced all of our stuff uh, all of our manufacturing or a lot of it a lot of our production over there to china and while they you know <laughs> it's interesting there's so many different avenues to think about like that you know they're beating up the 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 environment with this with this production and you know even during covid we've now realized that there's a lot of things that we are dependent on even for our drugs uh, manu to be manufactured from china so you know like I just find it very interesting the way that we have such a very short, narrow view on things here. And yet the Chinese still have this very long view on everything. Like they realize to accomplish greatness, it may not even happen in your lifetime. You're setting it up. This may take three generations. It's like they already did a Silk Road once and it seems like they're on their way to do it now, providing these loans to all these little ports and building them up into giant ports that can handle commercial tra trade and travel throughout the world, giving the loans to these places. And then the, the, these, you know, small countries or small port towns are indebted to the Chinese government. It's quite brilliant. Yeah. There's, <laughs> in a sinister sort of way, maybe. Yeah. There's definitely what we see in China up till now has been a very potent combination, right? Of, like you said, capitalism, some, a form of state capitalism, we can call it, right? You have a super powerful state, you have all these market mechanisms, and somehow there's a marriage there that's produced phenomenal growth, a lot of development. Um, there are a couple myths, though, that we should probably try and break break a little bit. Let's do one, it. One big myth is this idea that China is, a, it's an ancient culture, it definitely is. I mean, China, I'll, I'll say it up front, China's one of the most, you know, the most impressive cultures in the world. I think anyone, even if you think China is a very important adversary, it's an enemy, it's, it's all this, you should still, you know, look at it for what it is, not what you imagine, not like some weak. You should respect your enemy. Yeah, yeah. Respect, yeah. respect your enemy. If you view it that way. If you view it that way, yeah. at least respect your enemy. But the thing is, China's history, and so with, with that often comes this idea that China is, it has this really long view, this wise, it's like this wise old sage that is just always looking out to the future. But when you really look at Chinese history, there's a lot of division and war and chaos. And so as an example, ancient Egypt, which really got together around 3300 BC, uh, it lasted until the, the second you know, millennium BC. And just that initial run of ancient Egypt is longer than all of the Chinese dynasties, the unified Chinese dynasties put together, the ones that came after. Interesting. So there's a bit of a mix up in the history here. And a lot of this comes from a lot of propaganda that the Chinese government has been doing for a very long time. Like- They got me. <laughs> they, well, they, they got everyone, well, it's, there's a couple things. Yeah. I mean, the, the, like you said, what we've seen the last 30 years, 40 years in particular, is phenomenal. It's the greatest industrial transformation the world's seen in such a compressed time. Of time, yeah. And right now, like you said, there's, China produces about 30% of all manufactured goods on earth. That's insane. It's insane. And we can definitely talk about where that leads because that was really good. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's, it's, it's phenomenal in a lot of ways, yeah. just the pure scale of it. But a lot of problems come with that. So when we talk about things like the Silk Road Initiative, like a funny, another myth is, is the Silk Road in general. The Silk Road is really, 
it's a it's a it's a corridor in China that went from the ancient one of the ancient capitals of China through Central Asia to Europe. But there are so many links in this chain that the only thing you could really put on this were really high value, low mass goods, you know, jade, um, gold. Like so there's very small things that you could actually do perfumes, stuff like that. It never had huge volumes of trade, and there were so many threats all along the way that it was never. It was really more. I mean, honestly, the, the Silk Road has become like a, a fad in historical circles in the, the new millennium, kind of as a result of China's current rise. And China is always keying to this stuff and trying to give foreign audiences. They have a, a propaganda department that's at the, you know, up at the, the top tier of their government. And they're, they're feeding this. They want to feed this. And so they're actually selling a lot of their initiatives as continue you know, to use this, this, this marketing that kind of they feel will work with us. And it does. But the thing about trade today over 90% of all trade happens by sea. You're never going to move you, those like that giant tanker that got right. caught in the in the, uh, the Suez Canal. That thing is enormous. There's no amount of, you would need a hundred roads, like a hundred railroads, like right. next to each other to even get like the, how many like you, if you just send all these ships that can go anywhere. That's why trade is has moved to the sea. It's been maritime trade has been the core of international trade since the last 500 years, and it's actually impacted Chinese history very negatively ever since. Um, China's relationship to foreign powers, foreign trade is very, very tumultuous. And part of the reason it was able to develop in the last 40 years is because the U.S. was securing all of its borders and all of its boundaries, not intentionally, but it removed Japan as a threat, which Japan had been preying on China yeah. originally as pirates for like 800 years. Yeah, They were, they were mean. They, they basically went and pillaged like all the way, like up from Shanghai to Nanjing, almost to Wuhan. When they were trying to figure out their own leadership yeah. struggles. They're filling the their time. own thing. And yeah. they're like, they're, they need the sea. Like Japan, they, they have islands, they need to connect. They really need the sea. And China's very much a land civilization. Northern China, where Beijing and the core power center is in China, there's actually something people don't know. It's another thing that's sort of hidden, a bit of a, a myth is that there's actually no ports, no natural ports in all of Northern China. There's, well, there's, there's two harbors that work, but it's all flood, it's muddy, it's flat. It's, it's, it's terrible. There's sandbars everywhere. It's not deep. It's not deep enough for deep water ports. Interesting. And so you had never had a maritime culture. You never had a commercial culture in Northern China. What you had was a brutal military and political machine. That's kind of what existed there. And now with industrial power, like industrial technologies, they built all these ports. They like, they, they, they fat, they like forged them along the coast. They just like brute I mean, forth. They're, they're literally they, they dredged it. They put steel piles yeah. in. Yeah. And they actually made them. They're man-made. They're man-made. And, and actually, this this potential is this is what they're doing in other countries. So a big thing with China is like it has this thirty percent of world manufacturing. It has all this industrial capacity and it actually has to use it. So right now, China's been playing this game of they need to make sure all of their factories are running. All of you know they're building as many ports as possible. They have to keep output high because that's how you keep people employed. That's how you keep skills high. And this is they're sort of running. You know, they, they got to run. It's like the shark, like Const the shark constantly chasing yeah. the dragon. Yeah. yeah. Or like I, th I was thinking just now that the shark, like the, it has to keep moving. Always, like it yeah. cannot stop. And so you, you really don't want it to stop. And so they're building ports all over the world. But China's already it already has it, is, it has so much excess port capacity. It's ridiculous. There are giant ports in China that are just rusting away. There are huge piers and terminals that are just rusting away. There's so much competition all along the coast because actually the most developed parts of China the highest GDP per capita, best lifestyles, you know, most sophisticated everything, it's all along the coast. And you actually see less and less development as you move in. 
Well, doesn't the government kind of like control the development along the coast so it's not being overproduced? I mean, pretty much nothing happens there without the government like approving it, right? Right. That true. Or, and or is that a misconception? It's it, it's <laughs> it's actually it's a it's a bit of a misconception, but it's also true. Like it's a bit of a paradox in a way. China's so big, so. This, the the province the province of Guangdong it's huge. I don't think people South. understand yeah. how big China is. Like, I'll give a quick thing that always helps. Like Guangdong province, which is where Hong Kong and uh, right near Hong Kong, this this is the big export center in the south. It has a larger population than any European country except for Russia. Just this province, um, and it's it's also yeah it's 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 painful and it's like it's painfully large and that's been chinese history it's like Popul population but landmass too landmass so there's multiple provinces that crazy. are all like this yeah so it's a real it's a real thing and what china has to do is sort of it needs imperial like central control and then it also it's also just so big to manage though that it does delegate all sorts of things to local governments so it's not like a local market or anything it's you have a central government demanding things of the local government and it's always the tension between these two is like a huge problem. So that's actually one big thing if we could talk about. That's probably a very big factor in what happened in Wuhan with the, the COVID pandemic. There was part of the reason there was so much weird cover up and stuff early on is because you had basically local governments, state state level governments that did not want all their their screw ups to be seen by the higher ups. Mm. And so you had them hiding things, you know, convert, you know, trying to prevent things, trying to do all that it's just it's the one of these constant tensions where you have the center and the periphery and they're always trying to manage it so they do they all they often give guidelines and quotas for all these regions but the the local government is just there there's terrible incentives everywhere i've been mean, going on this yeah. for a while but it is one of those things where you do get overproduction everywhere you'll get overproduction everywhere because it's kind of how the local governments get money it's how they get more investment for them to keep their gdp numbers up they're always like cycling through more more output more production well, isn't that just a problem? I mean, that, to me, that doesn't even necessarily, from my perspective, have anything to do with like their political system or their style of government as much as it is the fact that that's a seems to be a trait of capitalism. I mean, we're sort of in that same trapping over here, except we don't necessarily produce goods anymore. We we have. Uh, stock shares that quotas that we have to reach yeah and it's kind of the same thing like every quarter like the numbers have to go up and it's 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 something that i think we have this perception that that's the only thing that defines success and to me i don't know i'm not anti-capitalism i think capitalism can can be a very good thing in, in a lot of ways but it does seem to be a trait of capitalism that we have this constant need to always do better every quarter or it's viewed as a loss where in reality that's not how nature and anything in nature works nothing can go up forever you know there has to be some up and down it's how you again it kind of makes me think about that longer view it's it's like a longer term thing as to where everything is a, a very short term thought process anymore yeah i think one of the things that china did really well compared to the other sort of soviet union being a really good example is they married GDP targets and economic growth to sort of this the, as being the, the prime state goal. And they kind of done, they, they, they did that since the 1970s. And that's a good part of why they were able to merge this in the same way, because they ended up, they could use that forward drive that you see in capital, in the sort of capitalist processes. And they could sort of supercharge it with like state demands to do that even more. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, 
and it's true, we do have something very similar in the US. The thing that's very, that's unprecedented in scale in China, again, this is one of these things in China in general, there's just scale problems everywhere. The population is so big. The, the level of um, regional diversity is so big. The number of people, the number of different types of people, like non-Han Chinese is very big. One thing you see is just the, what we're seeing in China particularly is that the level of uh, credit uh, creation is off the charts. People, like, people going, going and obtaining credit. The government giving credit to regional, to, to different banks and then them sending it out to different companies. Gotcha. It's a, it's a policy that was used in Japan. Well, that's what we've done here. Right. And what's really <laughs> interesting is we don't actually send it really to, we send it kind of to finance firms yeah. more than anything. They don't actually like farm it back out to a lot of in, industrial or right. different product companies, but you do see that in China. So when the, yeah, you only get to 30% of global manufacturing if you're, if the money's going to, to that sort of stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's true. This long view that you talk about, it's, it is real. I mean, the Chinese Chinese government, every year they have the, the classic five-year plans and they've really, I mean, I want to give them credit where credit's due. The, the amount of, I mean, the roads, railroads, there's over like 600 major cities in China. The amount of pure physical development is pretty, pretty mind-blowing. What we're really looking at now is how, how, does this, how does this serve China for the next, let's say the next 10 years? What are, what's happening in the broader world to tell us whether this is really going to work the same way it did? And one of the things people that I'm really looking at that people might find interesting is just we're seeing the a global slowdown in, in consumption all around the world. So the consumption of so China, the way we, we set up the world, the U.S. set up the world after 1945 and then after right. during the 1970s with Nixon's changes is we kind of split the world into consumption centers and production centers. Right. So we're a major consumption center, the United States, and we consume things. And then we using our, you know, the. IT technologies, the supply, the globalized supply chains, global capital, we were able to create these networks of production all over the world that sync together and then sent products to consumption centers. So you have major production center, particularly in China, it really just pulled everything together. And from the top down in China, they know they can't maintain this, they can't maintain their level of growth by continuing to up production. So they, if they get to 40% of global production or 45, it's not gonna produce the results they need to sort of increase, decrease poverty, increase GDP per capita, they have to go start consuming themselves. And this is where they're hitting major, major problems. Yeah, that, I mean, while you were speaking, I was thinking and you, and you said it perfectly there at the end, like they're, they're converting into consumers. Like I was thinking, what's their end game as you were talking and it's, it's to become a consumer as well. Right. Yeah. Because their their population definitely or definitely seems, from what I understand, to want to have more of a consumer lifestyle. You it's know, a nicer lifestyle. it's a nicer yeah, lifestyle. Let's be honest. You yeah, know? it is. Um, it beats working in the factory sixteen hours a day. Um, but how you maintain that kind of production and still cater to the desires exactly. of the people is a very you know difficult thing, and it almost seems like they've decided that the you know, I, I don't know. I would love, obviously, want your perspective, but it, it, it almost seems from what I've understood that their approach to this is that to go more authoritarian to, you know, basically assimilate anyone that doesn't believe what they what the state wants them to believe in the case of the Uyghurs is, is a good example of that. Um, you know, I. 
and I don't know how that's going to go because we're already looking at at people trying to ca- call out and the difficulties that this is entailed with the whole origins of COVID and everything, just with the kind of control that China has on things. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Nobody seems to see them really making that shift to the consumer market. I mean, they've been talking about it since at least 2010, 2012, something like that. It was very clear with the global financial crisis where how things needed to shift. They had to really supercharge things to keep everything together during that time. Like they actually did very well, but they had to supercharge the production. And so they've been doing that now for a very long time and they, they can see where it's tapped out. And I think you're right that instead of consumption and this, this broad shift that, that people were expecting or they were told might happen. We're really just seeing an authoritarian what crackdown. we're always told, right? We'll bring democracy and capitalism to the world and everything will be perfect. Who said that? That's what all in the, America, wasn't that what we generally think? Oh, that we're as that a we're nation. Bring, that, that we'll bring. Uh, isn't that what the politicians always believe? That it's our, it's our job to bring democracy and capitalism to the world to save it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like I said earlier, <laughs> I think we, we believe that and we think these countries aren't like that. Like a place, and one thing I'm always astounded by is that people think that a place like Russia is ever going to see a democracy or a place like China, just right. for a little bit of history. Um, 1911, China's been an empire basically since 221 BC and tried to be an empire for a thousand years before that. But didn't well, quite shut get off there. for a really long time. I can't yeah, remember the dates for that, that, but was shut off from the rest of the world for a really long time, which I don't know if that, if that was good or bad for its history, but certainly. Well, it's, it's a really key thing. Yeah, the yeah, so around in the 12, 1200s, 1300s, China started to experiment with closing off the entire country to particularly to seaborne trade, to seaborne peoples. And actually, when the, the period in Japanese history where they also closed themselves off from the world, was, it was entirely taken from this period in Chinese history. They were actually copying it. And it worked better for Japan. They actually consolidated into one people. In China, it just led to all sorts of problems. Um, so that's definitely true. But in 1911 is really where modern China started. There was this Xinhai revolution and they were supposed to create, you know, the end of the empire, it was supposed to be the end of the Qing dynasty, the beginning of a new China. And what happened is not an evolution or revolution, really. It was really a, a devolution. China just broke into pieces. And it, these pieces did not say, hey, let's all join into a Congress and, you know, create a, elect a, a president. No, they actually just had warlords that just set up in the different regions and they started going to war, which is what happens in China. Always. This was in the early 1900s. Yeah, so it's called the Warlord Era. It's literally called the Warlord Era. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then you got the, the nationalists and the communists. And I'll tell people, when I say that Russia probably won't ever be a democracy or something like China, I mean I mean that kind of even more kind of relevantly, like if China was not communist now, if the nationalists had won, it would still be a very authoritarian state if it was trying to stay together. Right. It would It would not look like what we want to look like. Just like Iraq is never going to look to be anything like we would think, oh, wow, we spent trillions of dollars there and that was worth it. Uh, So we really have to change our expectations. And one thing, China is a very terrifying place. When the tyranny is going strong in China, it's it's horrifying. It's really and what they're doing with new technologies now, like you mentioned with the Uyghurs, they're they're upping the game for what an authoritarian state can do because they have to. They have so many people that, again, scale is a problem. They they have to scale up this infrastructure to make it work. And that's really hard. And, it's and, terrifying. And so hard. they're doing that mainly through technology, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's that's the, how they're monitoring every. They've basically 
got a Black Mirror episode going on, you know, in real time over there with the data. We think the data collection here is crazy, but over there it's they're tracing. They know people's gates of wa the walk and everything to be able to identify people. Yeah. The Xinjiang where the Uyghurs are is really it was really the the training ground for all of this. They really tried out all these technologies. So they have gate analysis. They have everyone has biometric markers, your your eyes, your your fingers and everything. And they're trying even even newer stuff to be to, if you guys want to stay on the cutting edge of, <laughs> of this stuff. They're actually doing pure emotional. Um, and so they have technology to look at your face and read your emotions purely through algorithms. So the idea is like, hey, you're walking up to a store or something. It looks like you're very they, the program could read you're frustrated and angry and maybe you'll just get pulled off to the side or something. They actually want, well, they're adding so many layers to how you can view people. So if you have a mask on and, you know, it's it's, it's, it's scary. Terrifying. This is terrifying like uh, turning yeah. into Minority Report and like uh, almost arresting people before. Oh, for sure. You know, they, and they want you to internalize these values. So there's a social credit system now where you basically get rewarded for good behavior, what the government sees as good behavior. Let's say you, you know, you cross the street and you don't, you don't jaywalk you pay all your bills on time, you say the right things on the internet, et cetera, you can get, oh, a slightly, cheap, a slightly cheaper plane ticket or something. You get oh, a slightly better actual credit score. Yeah. Uh, it's really systemic. And the, the thing is, they're very worried about how they keep everything together. Like we were talking about, if the economic engine starts to stall, all those pieces of China that originally spun out into their own things and grabbed the warlords, all of these regions they have to be kept together. And they originally kept together with credit and subsidies. And hey, everyone's, you know, everything's up. getting better. Yeah. But China, to give an example for people, you know, Appalachia is a place in the U.S. that's very hard to develop. It doesn't have great, like once coal left, it's like, what on earth do you do to make, to bring, you know, better development, better prosperity here? Yeah. It's, it's a huge problem. And China has something like the entire U, an entire U.S. population that are living in an Appalachia-like condition environment. You have something like over 300 million people at minimum that are in something like this. What do you do with a poor or a, a struggling region of that magnitude? It's an insane question. Just that, just that poverty question. And we, and it's hard for us just to grasp our head around over here about our homeless problem, which yeah, is nothing in, in comparison. I mean, yeah, it's the, again, the, the scale things, whenever part of the reason I think that the Chinese pull out such insane schemes for everything. And I think some of them are really, really impressive in this sort of, you know, they don't align with our morals, but just the sheer ambition of a lot sure, of these things. Super impressive. What is, was it when COVID happened? They built entire hospitals in like three days or a week yeah. or something. It was ridiculous. Yeah. They also have 10 percent the ICU capacity of the U.S. So they were very worried about a lot of things. True. <laughs> um, so there's a there's a lot of things with COVID where the the Chinese government had had enormous fears. I mean, SARS was another coronavirus that popped out mm, in the early that. 2000s. And it really, there was a new Chinese uh, you know, president at the time, and it was really bad for, for the regime. And they were extremely worried and it almost turned into a bit of a disaster. And so they were, they've kind of been through this rodeo a bit. Uh, and they were, yeah, they, they cracked down really, really quick. Yeah. Um, and they, what's funny is that they did very well on the front end of responding. They have something called you know, this is a little bit about the, the dark side of, of Chinese uh, social controls here. But, well, what's really interesting about China is that we have our U.S. military. We go around the world and kind of invade and attack everyone. And, <laughs> I mean, we, we're up in everyone's grill is one way yeah. to think about it all the time, which is what it is. But China has a, a domestic military budget, more or less, that is larger than its foreign budget. It has internal police and whole systems, and it costs more 
then the the entire all the ships all the planes everything it's all the sh all the islands it's building all the new airports everything it's building there is actually less than the internal security budget which is a wild thing to yeah Amer try. americans would have a a conniption fit if that yeah. happened uh, here we also have so many guns it's kind of hard to do like you can't you don't even have guns in china it's like a very uh, different interesting thing. i mean a china with a right to sell to bear arms would just be in constant rebellion it would be constant violence yeah and you know it's it's interesting here people here that are you know i've i i've i've been back and forth on the whole gun issue you know how, how i feel about it but in, in the end you know it's it's very unique uh i know we have our issues issues and problems with it but you know sometimes you do wonder if it's if it's not one of the factors that prevents us from going into certain directions that would be maybe not as ideal as what we now have yeah the the not side that, not that what we have now is ideal Definitely. The, I think but, the part of the tradition it pulls from is this idea that an armed citizenry is a great bulwark against sort of some sort of tyranny. And yeah. then, you know, how that plays out with assault rifles and all the things we have now is obviously an open question. But that's never been a principle that China has ever, <laughs> ever believed in. Um, and a lot of places in the world, like you said, it's, it's very unique. It's, yeah. it's a very rare thing. But yeah, in China, they have something called this grid. It's, a, it's called the grid system. Basically, there is a, a monitor of every level of, of of every block in China, every sort of geographic region has a person who's monitoring it and they report up to someone else and they report up to someone else. And it's a sort of, you know, grid's a great way to think about it. There's just multi-level grid layer of social control. Yeah. And basically when COVID hit, they activated this grid really for the first time. And they basically had people monitoring every single block. They had cameras, there's cameras all over China and they were monitoring everyone's temperature. They were monitoring where you went. You were, you know, you could get punished if you went outside of your building. There was insane social controls. Um, it's really, it's really the craziest probably we've ever seen. Uh, so that that's just a, a tip for kind of what that looks like. But what's funny is that they didn't actually do the vaccine, the follow through. Like the, if you want to go on offense against a virus, you get a vaccine. Right. That's kind of, this is all, that's all defensive stuff early on. Um, but what's actually weird is that we're in a bit of a, a better position now because the level of vaccination in the country is allowing things to open up again. Like there's constant repeated crackdowns or like lockdowns in China. Just still, they, yeah, they just a little, there'll be a little breakout and it's now become a sort of point of pride that there is no COVID in China. So every single, and what happens in China, originally there was the, the center, the sort of local governments were competing with the, the central government. And it was, there was a lot of chaos, but once it became clear that COVID needed to be shut down, you had, a complete complete agreement all the way down the chain so now if anyone sees any COVID, it's just like they'll lock down a whole city in like a day i mean don't we i mean i know neither one of us are, are medical professionals obviously but i mean is it realistic to really think that we should lock down every time there's a little case there's a case of covid i mean is it not going to be kind of like the flu to some extent, like we're never going to have it totally eradicated. It's not like a polio type of type of virus. Yeah, it seems endemic now. What will probably happen is we'll have maybe another spike or two based on the as it moves into hotter weather and all that and then colder weather and people are it kind of will move with the flu and we'll have maybe one or two more spikes in the population that's unvaccinated. And then we'll just be getting boosters probably every year. That's the most that's the scenario that seems most likely. Yeah, I think there was the variant in South Africa that is also appearing in rats, which means it's just going to be everywhere forever. 
so you're it's kind of stuck with it but yeah. it shouldn't be the scale of what we saw before it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anymore and there's no public support anymore yeah no no there, there's, no politicians there's, doing another lockdown that would there's in the US. not it would it would be detriment it would be game over for their career for sure i mean i don't understand why we haven't we've never had like this uh any messaging about you know eating better or exercising or you know having a better immune system like ultimately like it seems like a lot of the a big part of it was like obesity was a comorbidity for it yeah i've and, heard that and and just vitamin d a lack of vitamin d and some other you know nutrient you know supplements and nutrients and vitamins and you know, we as Americans, you know, just I feel like we need to take some personal responsibility as well and just, you know, take take better care of ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I think we're also seeing that the public health systems built in the 20th century are kind of out of date for what we need now. You lose support. You know, people, people, someone like uh, a Fauci becomes a, a divisive figure. It's supposed to be someone who's just like a authoritative figure and he's just kind of boring and in a suit and ends up becoming a politicized narrative based thing. I was talking about this the other day. I don't even view him as a as a as a medical professional expert anymore. I view him as a as a political spokesperson at yeah, this point. I think that's a very common common belief, and I think that we really have to update some of these systems. So, some a place like China can just top down control. No one cares what you what anyone thinks yeah. about their their experts. But here we can't play that game, and I think that there's such an ability for people to look for. I mean, basically to get airtime by diverging, right? For giving strong opinions on the other side. So people are always challenged and, and it ends up, it ends up in a, in a muddle, basically. It's just, and you, you can't really move forward in the national way that people in the government want or the people who are expecting everything to go away want or people, it's just really tough. Yeah. So we're going to see, I don't think we're going to make any improvements. But this is unfortunately <laughs> what we got. Um, but people just don't buy it. Like it used to be that a, a health, public health was about scaring people into doing the right thing. Right. And then it would make it better because they wouldn't actually do it. Now that doesn't work. Like yeah. people will be like, no, you're clearly lying to me. Or, oh, you're, yeah. you're trying to induce me to do something or whatever. And they're not wrong, but there was a mechanism back in the day when you had like a couple sources of information. Yeah. We just don't have that anymore. We have a million sources of information. Yeah, the internet kind of changed everything. And, and and especially after, you know, a lot of disclosure between, you know, Trump's conversations being released a while back and then Fauci's emails. And it really seems like it's just another episode where the US government is trying to save themselves from being embarrassed. Uh, or connected to this in any in any respect, because, you know, it's it seems like indirect, whether, you know, it was indirectly or not, that Fauci kind of restarted this gain of function programming here in the U.S. and then funded, you know, this this lab in in Wuhan, China, uh, indirectly, maybe, but still. Yeah, that's something. I mean, the whole story around the lab. So and then China really just cracked down. It seemed like they were the ones from the beginning that just shut it down and were like, no, it's not the lab. There's no chance. And really kind of controlled the narrative with the World Health Organization as well. Like, yeah, I mean, to me, that's very problematic when one nation has so much control over an organization that should be above any nation. 
like the World Health Organization, the United Nations, things like that. They should be the idea, I think, is that they're above any one nation in particular or they're supposed to be at least. Or that they were originally the pawns of the U.S. That's also the other side to it. Yeah. Uh, Like the U.S. really loved those organizations when they just did what we said. But the way it works is that you they get funding based on the different states and a place like China, the same reason every business doesn't want to piss off China or people who are any sort of entertainer or public media that no one wants to piss off because it's a giant market. They can make money. Yeah. They are, yeah, they, they have a lot more sway now. And it really just pulled the WHO under it. Unfortunately, a lot of things that the sort of, there was a combination of media interests and then sort of the perception of what Trump was doing. And then there was the perception of like the American left and the Democrats about what, how to characterize this whole situation when it started. And it caused a lot of problems. Yeah. Like this this narrative was shut down about the lab when, I mean, you know, maybe it's, it was just ridiculous how people who were trying to say, hey, maybe this is something to think about were shut down as crazy. Uh, I was too. I had a, a podcast about it um, where I basically, and just, just to give people the current state of knowledge on this to what we can re- reasonably know probably in the near future too. There's basically two main plausible options. One is involved with the, the wildlife food chain. You can think of it as. So it goes everything from, capturing wild animals to moving them to transporting them to storing them to shipping them to consuming them to or to into selling them and the selling them is at the the wet markets right? right that was that thing but it's really this whole chain that whole chain all sorts of bad things happen and this is something like that was probably how SARS originally happened so it's not like completely unheard of. Of, not unheard of right. yet and there was a wet market um however we recently found out not recently actually months ago months and months ago we found out that yeah a lot of these cases didn't come from the wet market and then up the street there's a lab that studies coronaviruses. It is the, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not crazy talk. And it's, there's a whole history on this lab. I mean, I'll just give people some quick stats. Like this lab, it's called, it's a BE4 lab. So it's a biosafety level four lab. And the, yeah, these are, there's very few of these in the world. There's like 50, something like around 50 in the entire world. They study extremely dangerous um, viruses and pathogens and stuff like that. And China's first one is this one in Wuhan. And it, take, it took them 15 years to build it. Now, are these the only kind of labs that can do gain-of-function research? I don't know specifically about gain-of-function research. Okay. I, I think it's more about the, the virulence what, what or the kind? deadliness of the virus. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I think the actual type of stuff you can do, it doesn't matter. But this is like lab. very contagious Bad. lab. Yes. It's like they, the, they have the, the deadliest, the worst. The, mo- yeah. the worst you have on Earth. Gotcha. Um, so I think there's maybe... 12 or something in the US, it's not that many. And so there's also, that means there's not- That's 12, that's a lot still. <laughs> it seems huge, like a lot, it only yeah, takes one route break, obviously. the bioweapon research. Um, like this is, we, in the 50s and 60s, we did bioweapon research for, during the Cold War and stuff leaked out. Like this is, this isn't new, we, we did but that. Didn't, didn't Lyme disease, wasn't this an outbreak? I don't of, know about that. So I, I heard this on, uh, on another show talking about how Lyme disease originated from a, a, a lab that was developing same thing. They were trying to make chemo, uh, biological warfare back in the like 60s. And it broke out from that lab and the lab was in like Massachusetts. And it was like, I think the, or, or Connecticut, it was somewhere in New England. And the name of the city where the first outbreak was, was Lyme. Oh, wow. I didn't and know that's that. why it got the Never name Lyme disease. Huh. And now it's like, you know, rampant in deer and, and ticks. Oh, weird. Yeah. I don't know. That's really interesting. I might read more about that. <laughs> but there was, I mean, just in this millennium, there was a lab leak um, in a biosafety lab from 
I think there's one in the UK and there's also one in Singapore. So this stuff happens and it's air. It happens a lot. Yeah. And in China, this is their first lab. They don't have a workforce. They've never built a lab like this. They don't have people to staff it. They don't have, I mean, it, it took 15 years to build this lab and certify. Nothing takes 15 years so in China. who certifies Nothing it? takes 15 years to build in China. No, like, that's, yeah, that's for sure. That's like, yeah, you can't, it, you, the, the, the people who, who are building it would be like, would be fired like, a decade before, you know what I mean? There's yeah. like, to get a 15 year timeline is a very unusual thing, just to. So why did it take so long? Was it because they, they had a hard time getting it certified and up to like standards? Yeah, standards. I mean, I think that they, I think they were dragging their feet, to be honest. I mean, I think they, they wanted to do it because they felt it, would, it keeps you up in the game with like Russia and the United States as part of this general geopolitical thing. Japan also has one biosafety level four lab, but it actually never turned it on. Like it never actually accepted the, the most dangerous pass, the most dangerous pathogens because the community did not want it. Interesting. They just, they were like, no, you're not putting in my community either. All the, yeah. I wouldn't want it either. Exactly. In Japan, small, like the, the, you'll see the lab, like on the hill. You know what I mean? Honestly, if there was any country to have a lab like this, I would want it to be an island nation. So it's kind of like contained. Yeah. Ah, yeah. That's actually really true. Although now the air, uh, air yeah, fare, yeah. it doesn't matter, but, um, yeah, and so that that's all bad. And we have reports from their CIA cables about and State Department cables about how there's problems with this lab. They're like they're they're just the safety standards aren't up. They don't have a trained workforce to do this, and they don't have experience with so it. So this is before it's really opened. Yeah, that yeah. These, think, that these reports are yeah, coming it was in between 2015 and 2020. Uh, this was so it was being it was like certified and then opened. It took a while, and this is what happened. So if something if something came out of the lab, which is not you shouldn't discount. It was an error. I mean, this is like everything we see from the Chinese government too. This was not intentional. Like maybe, and even the gain of function research, even though I think it's ridiculous, I, I think that the the idea like, behind it—it's like fucking Doctor Evil trying to, yeah, you know, coming up with a plot. Yeah, you know? like sharks with lasers on their yeah, head or exactly. something. It's like I think let's. How we need can to we see, make how this? How can we make Ebola worse? I mean, it's yeah. It's like well, how do we defend against sharks with lasers? I think we need to build a design shark some sharks with, with more lasers. lasers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, and so there's just this this gain of function stuff. I mean, they're they're trying to you know see if they can defend it, but it it's a bad thing. I mean, there there are definitely good reasons to suggest that you know, based on the you know the genetics of the the virus that it was really prepared for the world, right? Well, I so don't know that I want any one individual to be able to make that kind of decision. As far as yes, we're going to greenlight this kind of research. I sort of feel like. When it comes to like taxpayer dollars, like we should get a little bit of say on this, just like the people in Japan, the community didn't want it. Like, let us weigh in a little bit, at least like get a take a take a poll and see what our, our feeling is, because I got a real serious feeling that a lot of people don't want the U.S. government doing or funding gain of function research. Yeah, it seems very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think a lot of this is also embedded with the military, right? A lot of the rationale for this is True. like, well, we need to defend against bioweapons. And a lot of this money came originally from anthrax and stuff that happened after 9-11. But the truth is, I mean, Aren't they our ability to defend against bioweapons is pretty minimal. I mean, look at what happened with the pandemic. Like if some crazy virus was released, none of the research was gonna do anything. It actually is a full national response and that's where we really struggle. Um, so I think that's something that we're not really considering, but. Yeah, we'll never have a lockdown like China e either, especially after this whole fiasco over here. No, I mean, I really think the government should probably be looking like, okay, we, we know now, we now know what this country is like. People will never comply. <laughs> yeah, people will never comply again. What like you know, this? I, what the government should probably be thinking about is like, well, 
do we lock down borders? Unfortunately, I mean, do you lock down ports of entry? How do you quarantine people? I mean, what you where the government has control, the same way it has control over immigration. Yeah, you have recent entrance, ports of entry. That's where you can control things. And unfortunately, our globalized world is it very much struggles with this. And I think what we're seeing it's kind of as an accelerant. COVID has functioned as an accelerant to a change in the general political economy of our of our world. To be honest, the already what we saw we saw with people wanting masks and vaccines to be built in their country, to be designed and manufactured in their country. That's we're seeing that across huge amounts of the supply chain, yeah. all sorts of supply chains. Well, yeah. maybe if there's a crazy heat wave, if we don't want all air conditioners built in China. I mean, you could really take this really far. Yeah. And I think that it's it's now begun. I mean, it began under Trump with sort of the nationalist, populist nationalist thing we saw there. But Biden is even more economically nationalist than Trump. No one's talking about it because it's kind of uncomfortable for everyone who thought there'd be a big change, but it's basically the same thing. I mean, I've, I've, I've thought for a long time that it, it really doesn't matter whether it's Democrats or Republicans in, in the White House or in power. They're just different. Uh, they're different brands of the same thing. Yeah, it's, they, they also don't know. There's, there's no grand plan for a lot of this. It really is like, I think people should really be considering that our government. We see how great our government is and how it, how, and I'm using that ironically, how yeah. effective it is. What we're going to see for probably the next decade is it muddling through. Like these parties don't even know what they're about anymore. They're really going to no. be transforming. They're going to, the Republican Party has to figure out what it, what it values, what it means. It has to redo this, it has to get rid of the Reagan um, you know, hangover, probably a Trump, a Trump hangover too. It has to be able to you know, be beyond the, the charisma, the charisma of any specific person or past era has to find out what it's going to be promoting right now, which is going to take a long time. And then the Democrats have an even bigger problem, just all the different chaotic groups that compose it. I mean, these are this isn't going to be solved very soon. And I don't think people should be looking to the politics to fix anything in the recent <laughs> future. And it gets worse. Like no. in a place like Germany, Germany, you have really good local governments. These guys are competent. Like the, a guy in the local tax office could be insanely smart. Yeah. And like really helpful and know everything, well-educated, very resourceful, very like effective. It's like ridiculous. Like you wouldn't expect that at all in the United States. We, we just don't have that. No, I wouldn't. We, yeah, <laughs> we don't have that. And you're not going to expect anything better um, at any other levels of government. And the coordination between government levels in the U.S. is also getting worse. So, yeah, I mean, that part of things is very depressing. But the, the real change, we have to look for a lot of technological changes to really drive any of the improvements that were expected just in whether it's something like a pandemic, like the thing that would make things better if we could get everyone to download an app, if we could get, there, there are some things that we could do that would make things a lot better that aren't as intrusive. Download an app for what? Well, so in Taiwan, they have, they have apps that basically tells you, like it can tell you if there's outbreaks in your area, something like that. I mean, it basically would use anonymized data about location and stuff like that. When, when something's come, they would be able to, I mean, you have a lot of data on your phone. I mean, we all know that because they, yeah, for like sure. you said, yeah, they're collecting all this data. Well, what if you used an anonymous version of like, hey, where this person's located, et cetera, et cetera. We all say, all right, let's opt in. You can have an anonymous version of my data for this crisis of the moment. And then we can you know, respond intelligently to things versus like, hey, let's like lock down this entire thing. But once you give that. them that information and that access, they're never going to relinquish it. That's yeah, not I how mean, the government works. I mean, it's not like we're doing it just for this and then we're going to shut down the app after we've passed this disaster. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And so what we're seeing in China is actually there's a huge crackdown on all tech companies right now. Anyone who doesn't the the era of like the great Chinese tech companies taking over the world, that's over. Is this one of the reasons why they frequently shut down and ban crypto? 
crypto periodically. Is, yeah, crypto is probably on the way out in China, but it is, yeah, crypto is a, a number of problems for China. First of all, crypto is a way to get capital out of China. Yeah. They don't want that. There's, I mean, they have capital controls for a reason. They need money in their economy. You can't get rich in China and then take your money out. That defeats everything. They need to ex yeah. ex you know, extract that wealth to keep everything going. So that's a problem. Also, just everything about it, basically, goes around, it circumvents national controls. It's anonymous. It's it's peer-to-peer. -peer. It has in major encryption capabilities. Everything about it is really bad. But you're actually seeing a lot of governments around the world are starting to associate crypto with basically transnational crime. Yeah, these hackers that are using it to get, yeah. you know, hold ransoms, I, you know, I... I don't I, 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 I know a little bit, but I don't know a lot about crypto. Yeah. But I, but somehow the crypto community is going to have to like step up because unless they want to be heavily regulated very quickly, like this is this this is a way that the government will step in very, very fast. Yeah. It's like crypto is the blockchain. It's an amazing technology. We hear yeah. all the stuff it can do. The private keys. There's amazing stuff. But, you know, a great use case right now for crypto getting money around governments like yes. and moving around yeah. borders and laundering money. Like that's just an immediate, easy, amazing use case. And so if that's the best one at the moment, that's not a good look if you're trying to accelerate this technology. But yeah. I do overall support a lot of the, the, the development of it. It's, there's really good potential for things, but unfortunately it's gotten wrapped up in this. And in China, it's really funny too. A lot of Bitcoin mining happens in China. We actually found right. out just how much when a, I think it was a dam or something burst in Xinjiang. Yeah. And something like 70%, you found, oh, basically 70% 70 of mining go, goes on in, in China. And you're just like, okay, well, what is it doing in North Korea, Russia, Iran, and China? It's like, well, it's being used to circumvent probably U.S. Um, financial regulations all around the world. Yeah, That's for sure. Of it. Now, coming back to the, to, the, to the lab thing for a second. It's my understanding, or I've heard that there are that there was there were two employees from this lab that have been traced back that were sick in. They called in sick in like November, October, November of two thousand nineteen. Yeah, the two people that worked at this lab. Right, I heard about that, and I think even one of their relatives ended up dying of COVID later. I mean. Are, how much, how, how clear are we ever going to get of an answer? Because like everything seems to be kind of coming back full circle mm -hmm. as far as, you know, a year ago, you couldn't even talk about the lab leak. And unfortunately, Trump is the one who said it publicly. And that just tainted the whole concept from the get go. Was it Kung Fu and the Wu flu? <laughs> the Wuhan flu. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like it is very important to know where this came from, how it was transmitted, just like we would with anything else. But I, I do worry that we're not going to get that clarity because I think the ultimate thing is, is how do we prevent this from, from happening again? Or it should yeah. be. Well, well, probably the first case, however, if it happened through the lab or if it happened along the wildlife chain, it probably occurred somewhere in September or maybe early October. There, there, were case, there were cases traced back to at least early October, and they knew that spring of 2020. The question was just how, how back. It probably doesn't go into the summer. Um, there would just be more cases. Right. Um, but yeah, somewhere around September. September probably is where I think the earliest probably happened. And how much will we know? It's a real problem. I think that China doesn't want this to happen again either, but we 
we've been through this with, with SARS. There was a huge effort to try and prevent something like this from happening. They did just insane number of, of things to say, oh, we can prevent this. We can do all this. And it didn't, it didn't work. Didn't and, we cut our budget for this though? Didn't we cut our funding during uh, end of Obama or during Trump's presidency? Didn't they cut the funding for like the emergency relief for the CDC and stuff? Yeah, I, there was a, the Trump's administration had a number of early failures. I mean, everyone can see that. Like things could have been handled better at the front. And there was a, a team, I think, set up during the Obama administration that was focused on preventing bio attacks and stuff like that and sort of basically nefarious pathogens that come after the country. Right. Um, how much would this have really done? I mean, it really would have been a question of execution. So a lot of this is like, could, could Trump have executed better early on? Yes, I think that's that's true. Would it have changed? I mean, I think you could have, I think a lot of things could have been done better. I don't know how much it was just a question of funding though. I don't think the added funding, I don't think a, there's any sort of infrastructure of a scale we right. would have needed. It would have been m massive action. And so I don't know, I don't see a lot of potential for that to, to get a lot better. Like we were saying earlier, I think that the US, like we could set up something, we could have some money. I think people are ready. Like the, the country would be better prepared. That's a really good thing. Like if, if someone said, hey, we're not locking down the borders, something crazy happened. I think people would say, all right, we're doing that better than locking down anything else. Right. So that's true. And getting back to the question about what happened and sort of what we'll know, I think that hopefully we'll, we'll learn whether it was the lab or the or the, the wildlife chain. I think the, Trump, the Communist Party is going to do everything possible to... It's, it's also putting out all sorts of insane narratives. I mean, <laughs> it is. they've said it came from Italy. They've said it came from a U.S. army base. They've said all sorts of... They say it comes from... Well, it does a little bit come from these... But doesn't it seem like there's some sort of uh, effort to control the narrative away from discussing the lab leak? You know, I mean, it's been very difficult to discuss it without being censored. And yeah. even here in the U.S., you know, I mean, right now, you know, Brett Weinstein is having the hardest time to talk about the vaccine and, you know, why you can't have a conversation about these other uh, medicines and therapies that seem to have, be effective as an alternative. And, you know... I don't know. Too often to me, it always comes right back down to the money. If you follow the yeah. money, it's like, well, if they want this access to this special funding, there can't be any alternative treatments. And so they're right. all just saying there's no alternative treatments. And so I, I'm skeptical if we'll ever get, you know, full, full knowledge on and clarity on all this. Yeah. And I think what's so weird is just the media response in the U.S. because that you can't account for as being demanded by the US government or the Chinese government. The Chinese government controlled everything, but in the US we had the media really shutting down talk about the lab leak in particular. The first six months of last year, couldn't really talk about it. Towards the last the last three months of the year, you, you started to come out again. I think but, they're kind of controlled. Yeah. I, I do kind Where of do you think, think it came from. I do think they're kind of controlled a bit. You know, the media here, I mean, you can definitely see that there's teams, Fox and, you know, right. uh, there's a Newsmax or whatever. There's a couple others that are all the conservative side. And then there's MSNBC and CNN and all that are on the left side. And they've both got their teams that they're marketing to and they're telling those narratives to their teams. And that's how they're staying alive. And I think that it's really strange when you watch, you can watch news clips and news segments, and they'll say the exact same messaging 
different channels, different reporters, but they say the exact same, not even the same message. It's the exact same wording. Yeah. And that makes me think somebody's going around and being like, this here's what we need to say. This yeah, here's how, we, this, again, this here's how we need to do this. There's also the thing where journalists always look towards each other. Like they don't want to be missing the story. So they're always looking at exactly what everyone else is saying. There's, it's, it's really a bubble in that way. But I see what you're saying. There's yeah. more. It goes deeper. It creates an echo chamber, though, does, if you're always following. It what? does create a huge echo chamber. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of moral force behind these echo chambers now. It's like, oh, we're the, we're the privileged people who understand what's going on. We don't want these crazy false facts floating around. I think it is compressing the, the narrative space a lot. And, yeah, I think, I think you're right, though. There is – I mean, what I encourage people to do often is just to – you know, you get – there are good – resources online that will tell you the basic ideological leaning of most resource, news sources in the U.S. and around the world. Right. And just, if there's a headline, go check out a couple of each side. You know, it doesn't take much. It takes less time to check out, see how different the perspectives are than to actually read the, the story. It's really helpful. It can yeah. say, oh, wow, like, here's this being framed to inflame people on the right. Here's this being inflamed, you know, written to kind of incense people on the left. And what's even better, you can even look now, you can look at foreign sources. You can look at what Germany thinks about something. Right, right. Look at what South Korea thinks about something. That's a great way to coordinate what may be going, like what, how things are being slanted. Because they're, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful and amazing how well they're able to control people's emotions. And that's really what they're going for. They're going for our emotions. Just like political campaigns sure. and just like art, different movies and stuff and music. It's part of that. The problem with taking a sources and getting information in all those different perspectives is the fact that most people, and you may not be most people, but most people, I feel like there's a lack of either the ability for critical thinking to disseminate information and, 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 and figure out what's true and what's not, as well as time. Most people just don't time take, take the time. To, they don't have the time to, to do all that. I mean, I try to do the same thing and, and get sort, you know, read about things from different sources around everywhere because I feel like there are no true one news, news source that you can trust anymore. Yeah. You have to kind of take it all in and then, you know, see what matches and what doesn't and then know what to kick out and not believe and, and move forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, just recently, you know, you mentioned Taiwan earlier and I'm always very intrigued with Taiwan because I never, I don't understand this relation, this relationship completely. I mean, obviously China claims that it's, it's part of China. Taiwan seems to claim that they are not. And for the most part, the rest of the world seems to treat Taiwan uh, like its own place, um, unless you're trying to sell something in China, like we just saw with John Cena for this new movie. Yeah, it just it happens again and again. Yeah, I mean, I can give some context for the like, Taiwan. Yeah, question. What, what is the? I mean, how how is what is the? Give a little backstory, like why yeah. is it that way? And then I think it, because I vaguely remember something about. Uh, a political or a revolution, revolutionary leader, and then he got kicked. He escaped to the island of Taiwan, and it became became Taiwan. Yeah, so let's go over or real quick. Like I'll that. give you the, the cool backstory that people don't talk about often, which gives us a bit more context for it. But the recent story was in 1945, well, 1949. They from 1945 to 1949, you had a civil war in China, one of many, 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 many civil wars, and this one was between the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party. Communist wonder Mao, and then the nationalist right. wonder guy named Ch Chiang Kai-shek. And 
That's right. Communist one. They and they caught they they conquered the northern part of China. They went sweep down to the south, and the nationalists fled to Taiwan, and that's where they've been ever since. But this story is actually pretty old. This has happened before. <laughs> this is a common thing. What we see over the last thousand years is really that. China's main problem, one of its main internal problems, has been a north versus south problem, particularly the areas around the Yellow River versus the, the Yangtze and these southern coastal cities and provinces. And that's what we see. And so what happens is that basically the people in the south flee towards Taiwan. Now, is that the area in the south? Is that like Shanghai is in that yeah, area? you can think of it from Shanghai down to Hong Kong. Gotcha. Okay. That's a good way to think about it. Shanghai is kind of like in the middle ground, sort of like in between the, the middle point, kind gotcha. of the fulcrum. Okay. And yeah, and so what happens is you often have this, remember I mentioned that Northern China doesn't have this maritime, doesn't have these ports, doesn't have right. it south, from, from Shanghai to basically the bottom of China, farther than Hong Kong, you have almost, you have more ports than basically the rest of South, South Asia, Southeast Asia. It's insane. There's an insane number of ports. You have this very indented coast. So there's always like these little bends in the in the coastline, it protects the these area these regions from sort of storm surges and all these tidal forces. And you have very deep water, and so they have, an, they have an immense maritime culture, and then they have an immense commercial culture because they don't have a lot of resources at all. It's basically just mountains that go right up against the coast. Interesting. So you have just and so what happens over time is this is basically a separatist region, particularly from south of Hong, south of the the Yangtze River Delta, where Shanghai is, all the way down past Hong Kong. This these regions. Do, are not connected to China. These are basically individual city-states like settled on ports, little harbors that form per, ports. And these are, this is their, their, their entire life. And they, they don't mesh with the rest of China, and particularly with the Northern government in Beijing. And there's never been, so in communist history, recent communist history, there's no leader of China that's been from the South. They're always from the North. And there's few military, the military controls are actually from the North over the South. And what you see is basically a southern separatism. Basically, they split off and you can go to Taiwan as a little, basically, unsinkable aircraft carrier. And you can kind of force the issue. You can sit there and just kind of bide your time. But, but yeah, what we see is north versus south. And Taiwan has been ruling itself, self-ruling since 1949, since, they, since they, they fled the mainland. And the way it works is the U.S. is trying to keep things ambiguous. That's been strategy for the since the seventies. We're right. like, hey guys. So also, why didn't why didn't Mao conquer? Um, yeah, why didn't he just go after him? Us, the U.S. Navy means uh, you can't get there. This is this is China has never had a, a navy. So that's really the reason that they have never. We are the reason went Taiwan exists. Taiwan. Yeah, we're the, just the same reason South Korea exists. So why do we all? Why do we? Well, I guess it comes down to money, right? I started to say, why do we bow to them when, when it comes to Taiwan? I guess we bow to them in anything money related and, unless it comes to like an actual invasion or something that we would step in at that point. Yeah, a lot of it was based in the Cold War. It was because we were focused on the Soviet Union. And so we were like, hey, China, we'll appease you. We'll, we'll be a little less. We'll say you're China. We actually said for a long time, we actually said that Taiwan was China. We forced the rest of the world to agree with us. And then when we changed, we now said China is China and Taiwan and China said no one can acknowledge Taiwan. So things have just flipped. Like there's a whole right, intricate right. thing that's it's really not that interesting. The basic dy dynamic of like, hey, you can be a China, you can be a self-sufficient Chinese Southern state basically in Taiwan. That's the really the key thing. And we've allowed it. And so Taiwan was also very involved 
kind of the way it works is that Japan took over Taiwan and they actually industrialized Taiwan. And Taiwan was basically under military dictatorship during the 60s and 70s, and it developed. And it was actually one of the main sources of, of capital and knowledge and technology that went to China to help China develop. Same role that Hong Kong, not a different role, but similar to what Hong Kong did. Was it Taipei? It's a huge manufacturing city, right? Yeah, and they have, particularly for semiconductors, it's enormous right now. They're a global center of semiconductor manufacturing, which is miserable for China, which is because they have like, they want that and it's literally off the coast. They can't have it. But yeah, Taiwan <laughs> is a huge, huge thing. The Chinese military is basically de designed to conquer Taiwan. That's its entire goal. Like people get very scared of the Chinese military, which there's good reason to, because it's, it's huge and it's all this, but it's also hasn't fought at all since 1979. So that means that it has never secured you know, airspace. It's never really done any joint operations. Right. It's never done any sort of amphibious assault. Basically, a, con a conquest or invasion of Taiwan is the most difficult sort of military operation you can do. Um, this is what the U.S. did in Incheon in, in South Korea and also Normandy during World War II. So Korean War in the um, World War II. Invading on a beach, not fun. Yeah, it's much easier for them. Like we did it across the world, so that's yeah. actually much harder. Yeah, true. They're, they're just crossing the basically 100 miles um, with, but... It's no one's ever done this for like a modern industrialized country. And the way it works is there's, there's not that most of Taiwan is like Taiwan is a fortress, basically. That was the last time. Was it World War Two or the Korean War was, yeah. I guess, the last time there was like invasions of, well, unless you count our en encroachment on other countries here in the, like a seaborne from the U.S. Kind but, of invasion? But yeah, the last time there was like, you know, a lot of seaborne invasions like that. The Argentines tried in uh, in the Falkland War. I mean, yeah, true. There's a couple. I mean, there's no, a couple, I the guess. The thing is, a navy is much harder to build than an army. And it's usually a, a wealthy nation like the United States or Britain that's an island or Japan. These are the countries that end up forming navies. And you actually need a certain sort of country, certain conditions, certain neighbors, lack of neighbors, maritime, commercial culture, that kind of thing. It's very important to forming a navy. China's never had a navy until a thousand years ago. And basically it was to defend its coast and defend its main river. Uh, it's never had an expeditionary sort of navy. And there's a big, there's one moment in the Ming Dynasty when this Zhenghe, basically a a Muslim eunuch who was captured was basically put in charge of this, this fleet that when a new emperor came in power, he basically just sent it on like, basically like, I don't know, victory laps around the world kind of thing. <laughs> it was not really, a, I mean, it actually did go conquer some stuff along the way or like kind of attack, but this is, people have made this into just this crazy moment trying to say it's just like what's happening now. It's like, no, this is a single, like it's the exception that proves the rule sort of. And yeah, China's never had a navy. It's very hard. It's very hard. It's very, very expensive. Like, like I said, you have this giant domestic security apparatus you need. You have a giant, you need a giant military because you have the Russians in the north. You have India in the southwest. You have Vietnam, who you've been at war with and tried to conquer and, and basically rule for a thousand years and they despise you and they will go like yeah. die to the man. Like India doesn't even, I mean, Vietnam barely remembers us. They barely remembers us. They're happy to do business with us, with us, even though we had Vietnam there, which is coded in our brains is like this terrible war it doesn't even register compared to the thousands of years of <laughs> rebellion and revolt against china that they've gone through since forever so it's it's different and you obviously have japan and korea right there i mean this is a china has more borders and more neighbors than any country and you have to pay for that you really do it's very nice to be in north america with just mexico and canada where you can just attack everyone else and kind of chill it's, it's a real thing and it costs a lot of money yeah I mean, that sounds extremely complex and difficult. Like what, 
I mean, do they have a long-term plan? Like what is, what is their, 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 how are they going to you know, because it's an economic problem. It's a lifestyle problem for their citizens. It's a geographical nightmare. I mean, even just talking about Taiwan, like even recently with Hong Kong, like, I mean, it seems like they want to shut down and control like literally every little bit of it, even though it's so difficult to do. It's like it almost like it would make more sense if they broke it up differently or if they managed it differently. Do you mean Hong Kong or China in general? China in general. This you is the know, challenge. Like, like maybe if the South is vastly different, you know, have a unified, you know, it's it's similar to like how I feel like in Spain, like a lot of the e commerce comes from the Barcelona area yeah. and it really funds the, a lot of the rest of the country, to be quite honest. And, you know, maybe the South could be that way, but the, I don't know, I guess you have, you got to have the North be being willing to give up some power because then if the South's, you know, constantly pay, paying it, you know, they're going to want to have some say in what's going on. I mean, the, the truth is that China needs decades and probably hundreds of years to continue to consolidate its country. It's not there yet. You know, we in the United States, we developed very rapidly, developed into one large country with a national spirit and a you know, national economy and a national culture uh, with obviously a lot of regional variation, but it really is integrated. Right. And that's not China. It's just it is like you said, it relates to the geography. It's a very difficult thing to to manage. And yeah, you asked the great question. Like it has it seems to have a lot of problems. How on earth is it going to manage it? And that's kind of some of the stuff I've been untangling. And there isn't a real answer for it. It's not going to solve these problems in the next 10 years. It's just not going to. And what happens next is, is the real problem. And China's basically, if there's a little pithy line about what China's history has looked like and what its future probably looks like, it's either tyranny or chaos. That's the symbol. I mean, that's what all of China's history teaches. And I think since 1911, They've been looking for something different. Like, how do we get away from this? How do we enter a Republican era, a modern era, a different era? And they don't quite have it yet. I think that there's been huge changes. All And the reason China has built its insane infrastructure is because it knows these challenges, these geographic challenges in particular, are so big. You need a crazy high-speed rail system. You need all of this. Right. You have no choice. You, if you have to tunnel through 17, like there's a specific, there's a specific uh, train line that goes into Sichuan province, which is sort of a, upstream in the Yangtze, like up, upstream from Wuhan and Shanghai, there's like dozens and dozens of tunnels that go through. There's, it just tunnels through mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain. It's so rugged. It's so difficult. And there's so much, and you have to build this everywhere. It's, it's an insane problem. All the investment they've done still isn't enough. It's amazing, but you need, we need new technologies and they probably need to flatten the cultures more. They need more time and you don't have time. It's kind of, I think you brought up Spain. That was a really good Good example, because Spain's one of those countries like you're right. Barcelona does have the money. It's the, you know, the northwest, like cold, uh, sorry, the northeast cold, sort of port. And, and it's surrounded by mountains and it has its own culture. It has its own language and doesn't feel connected to the rest of Spain. And Spain keeps it together, keeps Spain together by kind of giving them a bit of autonomy. But there's this constant tension for sure. They want to break out. <laughs> yeah. And in Spain, it has a lot of problems because it has stuff in the in the south that's the same in galicia and the basque region in the north it has yeah. all of these problems and you see that everywhere you see all these countries that we think of as nations and nation states they're not there yet this is language a lot of this believe it or not comes from the u.s we invented all this stuff like in the night in the early 20th century we, we just decided 
hey, there's all these empires in the world. This is what happened. We, there's all these empires, and there's a Russian empire, there's a British empire, and we were like, hey, we want our own empire. Well, it was like, well, it was like, first of all, we tried that. We had two things. It was first, like, first, we want our own empire. And then we realized, you know, we actually have, the U.S. became the largest industrial manufacturer, the largest agricultural producer, the largest commercial market, largest everything in the 1880s. Yeah. Before it had done its grand imperial Industrialization, stuff, yeah. It, it had, but before it had even, like, conquered, you know, Cuba or the Philippines, like, before it actually went imperial for a moment, for a big moment, it was already all of this. And the reason is because we just have enough of the research. We have basically like a lot of the best land, a lot of the things that contribute to making a really powerful state. And so we had this option. It's like, hey, well, we can form our own empire, but they kind of took all the good stuff. That's the problem. It's like, do we want to go war with every single, I mean, it's, it's carved yeah. up. Or do we say, hey, everyone deserves to be free. You know, I mean, that's actually what happened. We yeah. said, well, yeah, it's like, hey, that's really convenient. We want to break up your empires so we can trade with all the pieces. And so we did that. Um, and we kind of enforced it after World War II. It's like, we, there's never been a world where there's been hundreds of like a, whatever, close to 200 individual nations. Right. It doesn't happen. There was a large, big dog and he ate up all the people around him yeah. and occasionally like had to vomit them up or whatever. Um, but that's what happened. You had these like regional powers and all these things. This world of, of 200 nations, it's not real. And it's probably not something that will last unless the U.S. wants to play world police to enforce this vision. But will that happen? Probably not. And can you, can it even really afford to do it? Can it prevent Turkey and Russia and, and China and Japan and all these countries from doing their things in their neighborhoods? I mean, that's a real question. I don't, I mean, it's. I don't think the American people have the appetite for it anymore. I don't either. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't see it. I mean, even pe whether people are on the right or the left, the people I talk to just don't think that this is what we need to be spending our money on. Yeah. Do you think that the government has any, I can sometimes get the sense that our government thinks like that's where it feels good about itself. Like all the, like when Biden goes to the G seven or anyone goes to these events, you feel like you're the king of the world and all this. I think that they embrace that role because it kind of like, it's a validating or something because you, they don't achieve much like in the U S you get like, you have your one signature de, you know, piece of legislation and then you're basically a lame duck forever. That's the new MO. Yeah. So they kind of go off and gallivant around the world. But I think you're right. There's, there's not an appetite for it, but I don't think we yet know where, what, the, what it should look like. And I think creating a new world is crazy. What's probably going to happen is a lot of regions are just going to devolve into conflict and chaos. I mean, it's just it's depressing. Do but. you think that, you know, because... Human nature seems to be very difficult to prevent this cycle of stability and conflict and then stability and yeah. conflict. It seems like it's inevitable in our nature. And so I wonder, you know, with the way technology is evolving and, you know, AI and, and yeah. things like that, if maybe there's not a solution and I, I don't know what that solution is right now, but I'm wondering if there's some sort of solution there that is going to be developed in the next, you know, 50 years that will be able to kind of solve some of these problems, you know, economically speaking, lifestyle wise, where maybe things, maybe we don't need UBI because we have AI that can just do stuff for us that we don't have to do anymore. Maybe we can have huge production and manufacturing without people having to work for it or, you know, labor to get it done. Yeah. One big constraint on a lot of this, particularly like tech stuff, is just energy. 
So for whatever you need, like since the industrial revolution, energy has been this core thing. So the U.S. was in Iraq and we were in these, you know, we had all sorts of wars because of energy. It's been, you know, that's been the defining thing really since then. We went there to save people. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it's, it's it, there in the background for everything. And I think a lot of the world doesn't have that. You can't have, they can't run supercomputers. They can't run Bitcoin as a, as their currency. Right. I mean, there's just, this is a, it's a real, it's a real question. Like if we want to have, I mean, this is one of the reasons I, I've always found people talking about China going and running on, uh, you know, having electric cars and running on renewable energy. So insane. Like you would need four to five times more as much energy as China already produces to do that. It doesn't have the energy to actually lead the world in electric cars. It, it would it, literally, it already imports, it already imports more energy than Japan consumes. And the entire global market for energy would not be able to support it. And we're looking at a world where the energy, we're trying to you know, move away from all of the oil and natural gas and fossil fuels. Right. So a lot of the upstream production, a lot of the exploration that would give you new resources, that's trending down. You have, you have investor attacks on, investor looks at proxy battles over Exxon and all this. And maybe this is good. Maybe moving to the, I'm, I'm actually supportive of green energy and moving towards that stuff. But you, you have to do it. Like if you want to do this and let other countries develop and let their economies keep running, it's a very intricate question. And I don't know, when you add in like, hey, we're going to run everything on really fast computers. It's like, I just look at that. I'm like, damn, that is a lot of energy. And we already have problems on that. That's caused a lot of the most recent wars. Uh, and a place like Japan, it's a good reason for why it was in World War II, was just trying to fund the, trying to, well, basically fuel the, the, the industrial machine it had created. Right. And China, again, China does 30% of all the, in the manufacturing on earth. And that is expensive. I mean, that's a big reason why it, it uses more coal than the rest of the world combined. I mean, yeah. there's just these, there's these things on China, these scale things we've talked about. I, I don't know. I mean, I think the question of like, what do we do for the whole, like the whole world and trying to get all the, the stability and, and violence to, to end? It's a big one, man. I don't think we're solving it. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I think that what we're, we are seeing is that the period of stability seems to be waning. We're in, again, yeah. we look like we're in one of those down phases and it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, I don't think people know quite how to react to it. I mean, I think from my perspective, like I would agree, it's been a long time. You know, I know that the U S has been involved in wars, but the U S itself has, there's not been a world war situation or a Vietnam with a draft situation or even a war on our own soil in, in many, many, many years. And I think people have sort of here forgotten about like, the perspective of what true struggle and difficulty yeah. is a little bit. Um, and it could be, and that's what worries me, you know, if we ever, if we do have something that really is serious, whether it's an outbreak or whether it's, uh, you know, an, a, a real serious conflict, because people today here, I don't know, sometimes they do feel like they're a little bit, uh, soft around the edges yeah you know if you live in comfort that's kind of kind of what happens and we have a lot of comfort that's it's true um what do you think was the pandemic one of those things do you think that shocked a lot of people and out of that complacency you're talking about i think for some people it did but i think it depends on the individual i think for other people you know it's it's kind of like you know this this week even you know going out you know the mask mandate has pretty much been lifted, but 
you know, some people still choose to wear the mask and, you know, they're mixing with people who aren't wearing the mask in the same place. And it's, uh, you know, so I think people could go both ways. Yeah. You know, some people, an event like this, it'll make them more fearful about the world and right. unsure and everything else. And others will, you know, kind of buckle down and try and, yeah. and, and grind through it or whatever. Yeah, a lot of temperament. I think I think that's true. Um, but yeah, we'll really see. I'm not, I think a lot of people are very worried about like a large conflict between the U.S. and China. I mean, that's a big thing. And I think what we were talking about before, about how China... I mentioned all the countries around China. One of the reasons China doesn't like it to get into fights and problems is because it has so many potential ones that can spring up. Enemies over there. Everywhere and, yeah. and within. There's a lot of divisions within China. And so you, it really pushes it against trying to fight anything. And what's interesting is the U.S. actually directly fighting the U.S. is basically the worst decision because that ropes you in with all these other people. The most likely thing is really probably Taiwan. Um, that's what the Chinese military is geared for. And, and it's just really true that the military is a different thing in China. It's ruled by the, 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 gen, the general secretary and the, the communist party. It's, it, it's really an organ of the, of the party. And it's, it can't lose. <laughs> it can't lose. It would lose too much face. It would be such a, a huge blow to the authority of the leadership that they're super worried about like the U S we can go lose in, 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 in a conflict with anyone. Yeah. We, we can go lose in Vietnam go lose in Iraq, yeah. lose in Afghanistan. And, you know, it's, that, e it's that ego. We don't, doesn't yeah, phase us. But also doesn't phase. Yeah. It doesn't, it's the ego. It, it doesn't phase us, but also we're not as, um, it's kind of just like, it's, it's like a sport or something terrible. Like we, they're not core to what we, what we're doing right. and how our nation functions and stuff. And it's, it's not like that in China. Like if the, the, if a bunch of, I mean, if the military just got destroyed in a conflict, it would, Probably be the end of the government. Be crippling. Yeah, yeah. It'd, be, it'd be the end of the government, so, most likely. So you've said this a couple of times that the military is built kind of for Taiwan specifically. Do you think at some point they're actually going to make that move? That's the thing. I mean, I'm pretty sure. So they, they have all these dates they have in mind, right? They want to have China unified by it's all these, you know, 1949. Sure. And they're, they're looking, I think they're looking into the 1940s, but they're probably not going to have that much time. There's too many things that are spiraling in China that expecting 15 years to like slow more years to slowly build your strength probably not going to happen yeah. people are on to everything um so that's that's gonna happen i mean it could i mean i don't like to give dates for that kind of thing just because it's yeah well in, not in, a, not a date but yeah, do, do you but, think they'll eventually like really try to take over taiwan that I mean, and it I think, could cause a conflict like or are they just building this military perception just to like Keep chasing the dra dra keep chasing the dragon, so to speak. Yeah, but they'd also love if Taiwan was so intimidated that they just like give up, buckled. Yeah, yeah, yeah just buckled. Um, but what's happened in Hong Kong is kind of showed Taiwan what they have what, to what, lose. Yeah, what they have to lose and what it might look like, what things might look like for them. So that's basically out. But that's Taiwan not knows that they always have the back of the backing of the U.S. If something were to go down, yes or no? Well, uh, they kind of. I mean, that's that's this ambiguity we're talking uh, about. Uh, We've uh, left uh, it vague because we want to basically, we said we'll, we'll help Taiwan, but we don't consider them a country. And we have all these weird wordings the diplomats have used for decades. But yeah, the more China, the more we're going head to head with China, the less we're into this ambiguity. We might as well say, hey, we like Taiwan. Um, it's like thumbs our nose, like right in there. I or whatever like it's uh, <laughs> it's a real thing um, yeah. but Taiwan's just I mean if we started giving the right military equipment to Taiwan it would become un a problem yeah it would become in, like impossible to conquer because it's just already so set up I mean imagine just like a couple like muddy 
beaches and like giant granite cliffs everywhere just embedded with tunnels embedded with artillery with all this stuff all these islands around that you can have again further artillery anti-aircraft stuff it's hard like an invasion you have to send constant troops constant fuel like like lakes of fuel like you have to like just to do this it's yeah. incredibly um difficult to sustain it and you have i don't know 30 million people that are all going to fight it um and that you have the entire it's it's a major major th problem like I, we, yeah. we can get into it like in detail but the problem with talking about the military is things change so there are a lot of guys who were imagining in 2010 oh what would a conflict between taiwan and china look like it's like okay that was cool 10 years ago yeah, I've but, heard but this it changes talk before in the past yeah yeah it changes it changes a lot but I will say that one thing we're seeing is that the China's, China's investing in its capabilities to land troops there. It's really investing in its Navy to sort of project power across it. But the big thing is that it's becoming much easier to thwart this sort of stuff. Like if, China, if Taiwan had enough missiles, it would basically, you know, can launch its ships. It would make it impossible to. Right. You, just, you just wouldn't have enough ships. Right. I mean, China would really have to rec like take control of hundreds or hundreds of thousands of ships of, of like the merchant marine and stuff to actually make this work so it's it really is it would be the, it would be like china would really go after taiwan when it knew things with the rest of the world had spiraled like the it would no longer have easy access to energy resources it would have all sorts of problems i mean taiwan is also located perfectly to make any attempt to like you it would be you it would interdict everything right they could destroy it's, it's a huge problem i mean yeah. china has logistic a huge problem nightmare. Yeah. it's a logistic nightmare yeah. um i mean it's a fascinating question i mean there's actually a recent book that came out about like using the most recent sort of military technologies and doctrines and stuff in china and what they're focused on like how this might play out and what might happen it's like it's a book that came out it's actually kind of interesting but yeah i mean that that would be a, a real fireworks show like if we saw that or we find out that these unidentified flying objects are really just top secret Chinese military craft to invade Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, you never know. I mean, a lot of that could be weird information gathering stuff, I've always thought. But yeah, um, yeah it's funny about the UFOs. Like, I've always felt like the US military in the 60s and 70s was probably using them to like avoid, hey, like the, our secret stealth planes. Like, right. probably better we think have people think they're UFOs. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's just kind sure. of funny now. It's like, are you doing this again? Are you, you kind of switched your game? Is it just bizarre? Is it, has it really happened? It's always kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I the, just, you know, kind of off on that for a second, you know, that is something I've always kind of found interesting, but I'm one of those people I need to see proof with my own eyes, sort of, you know, I, I don't trust the government enough. And even, but it, I do find it interesting that a few individuals like Bob Lazar have kind of, it seems like the story that they told and he told in the 80s has remained consistent since then and is now, you know, some of the information coming out is kind of verifying that story that people said, you know, was bullshit years ago. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. But <laughs> I need to see it with my own eyes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that I wanted to to touch on or ask on about is is this kind of back to the censorship thing with China, because I, I do see a lot of parallels over here, especially recently with some of the recent, you know, 
even our domestic terror thing that was just released this earlier this week. Oh, I didn't um, see that. You know, that? about, well, they're wanting to put a lot of funding into, and they're basically wanting to turn a lot of the surveillance and things that they've used on the war on terror globally. They want to be able to access those things and use them on domestic terror here. Which they do already. I mean, spoiler alert. They do. <laughs> Um, but you I mean think, like in a systematic way or something. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they kind of laid out, the like they gave some it. examples of like yeah. what they would consider this kind of a domestic terrorist, you know, and it could be somebody that's, uh, from a, uh, uh, like PETA or something like that. And not that I think, you know, think what you will about PETA, but I, I don't know that they're necessarily like need to have like drones striking them or anything like that. Um, but how is there anything that we can learn from where China is already so far ahead with respect to government surveillance and censorship? And, and obviously, they don't have a, a First Amendment for free, you know, free speech. But is there anything that we can like learn from how that's all developed over there to kind of prevent that from happening here? Because it seems like that might be where some people want to head us. Yeah, I think there's there's good things to look at, too. So if for more of a libertarian sort of direction or things are more of an individual focused direction. There's a lot of things China's doing that really give clues about what we shouldn't do maybe, but it's hard to know what to do in, in the opposite right. way. So I, as one example, I think data, just what's going on with data in China is really instructive. So right now, China is basically taking control of all of the data owned by its equivalent of Apple and Google and Facebook and, and all these things. It's basically saying that all your data belongs to us as well. Like you, we can use this data just as much. And it's what's really interesting is in the US, we have a problem. We don't like that the private companies have all this data. Right. It's allowing them to do all sorts of bizarre, creepy tracking and creepy advertising and all that. But we, we don't like the government have it probably even more. Uh, but in China, it's being centralized into the government. I mean, it's basically, they're basically taking command of a lot of this data and they want to do all sorts of things with it. Uh, what I was suggesting earlier about anonymized versions of data is probably something that we should be considering a lot. I mean, you have to, when you need the data, you don't want to be in a position where the government has to like, in a crisis, like you said, right. says, hey, we need, a, we need this, and then they never, like, never let it go. And suddenly they have everything. I think that versions of anonymized data where you can't, you can, you know, it can tell, tell you a lot. Of, the problem is you can correlate a lot of anonymous data. Would, so it, wouldn't the solution to that to simply make all of the existing apps not record personal data, but record all the data as anonymous data. That's interesting. Like I mean, make I, that a, like a, a law or something like you can't collect personal information like that. You can only collect it as, as an anonymous file. Yeah. I just feel like they're just going to correlate multiple anonymous files and just be like, oh, that's, that's Matthew. <laughs> as I, I think that's yeah. kind of, I don't know. I, I, tech companies will be pretty good about getting around that. Yeah. And I, I don't know about the, the regulations we'll see, but Getting back to what China is doing, there's a lot of things it's doing. I mean, we see the similar thing in the financial industry where they're now accumulating data in a more sophisticated way than like credit scores. And they're doing similar things with purchases and intent to purchase and all that kind of stuff. You mean like everyday people purchasing? Yeah, purchasing what you know, you're looking at. at the which, store. Yeah, like all there's a lot of financial stuff and also your actual your money, your credit, your loans, your investments, your, your all these purchases. You can get a huge picture about what someone's doing. Based For on sure. Their, yeah, their money. Um we're seeing China's also taking control of that data as well. So it's taking, yeah, it really it's all these data in, in health areas, all of our personal medical data, you know, just in attention decisions about what media you look at, financial decisions, all of this is really being consolidated because the, the Chinese government is trying to, like we said, pull down the cost of ruling 
all of these people in a perhaps a very cost, difficult time. Cost per person needs yeah, to go it's down. Like the authoritarian <laughs> cost per capita needs to go down. Yeah. Um, so that's what they're trying to do. And in the U.S., I mean, I don't think I think there's a lot. The sad thing is that we don't have answers to a lot of the problems, like a lot of the things that is pushing China to do this. They're giving the quick authoritarian answer, centralized control, centralized data. But we don't have like a decentralized version. I think a lot of people who are very into crypto are trying to create something like this. Yes. Um, it's just it's just tough, though, because, again, you hit a crisis and the government, I mean, like with the insurrection, it's like, hey, I don't know actually about that. But assuming what you, based on what you said, it's like, hey, maybe we need all of this to use for, for something new and we're never going to stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like a, there, there are, and it's, it's really strange because, you know, it used to feel like it was conservatives and Republicans here in the U S that were so very, uh, that were more, you know, uh, surveillance and law and order kind of people, but it really seems to be coming from the left as much as anywhere where they want to, you know, be able to initiate a lot of these things. And that's why I, it comes all the way back to my comment at the very beginning, why I don't think there's really much of a difference between the two. It's like, yeah, you can like Coke or you can like Pepsi, but you're still a cola. Yeah, it's still a cola. I mean, I think if they don't have answers to the current I problems, don't, I don't think it doesn't of, matter. I don't think any of our leaders have... I don't even like calling them leaders because I, I don't think they show display leadership very often. I think I love they, that phrase because it reminds me of actors in LA where it's just like they are they're the that, political that actors. That is kind of what they are. They're like the spokespeople for their corporate overlords. Yeah, I mean that's a, they they kind of get their talking. You know, they get money, they get a nice lifestyle, and you know they in in turn they have to pass legislation that you know benefits the people who get them elected yeah i think most I mean, legislation just made by lobbyists at this point it's not it even a lot of it they written. don't even quite have the i mean a lot of the individual congressmen don't even have the staffs and the different they don't even have the resources and the staff to make most of this legisl legislation anymore so it's amusing make it make it i would like them just to read it before they vote on it yeah it would right be nice yeah it would be a big change um but yeah, I think this question is just that circling back to it of what to do about like when we see Chinese censorship just going and surveillance, everything going to insane heights. What do we what do we do when we feel a lot of these impulses in the U.S. or we feel that there's so many problems that that seems like an answer to, at least on the surface in a different way? And I I don't know. I mean, I think that it's going to be a major pull uh, for a long time. I think that what they're doing we're going to see, we're going to be a lot of people are going to be very impressed by it again just by like the ambition yeah. you know what i mean and you just think that why are they striving and then why are they still trying to create systems like the we don't even try seductive. yeah it's like we don't even try i think that what pisses everyone off is that we don't even seem to try like for it to solve any of these things we sort of just muddle right. through and like maybe their thing is dystopian <laughs> but yeah. it's not it's not like whiffing or just giving up what well, would be different if if there were but it's like in in LA you know here got such a huge homeless problem. You would think it's underfunded, but there's like $300 million or something a year for their annual budget, like for homeless. But yet nothing gets done, just like you said. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, That's why I say I don't think that for some reason, there's a variety of reasons, I'm sure, the best people that are capable of doing those jobs, these leadership jobs, these, these elected official jobs 
don't want those jobs. They don't yeah. run for those jobs. They don't apply for those jobs. We get people who have personal, most of the time they have personal agendas. They like power. They like attention. They like notoriety. Yeah. They have an ego, whatever it is. Um, I don't know. Somehow it feels like we need to have a little bit better leaders that are willing to kind of be like, look, I'm not trying to self-enrich and grow my power exclusively while I'm in here. That's not my main goal. My main goal actually is to like do stuff for the people. But I don't know how we get there. You're right, though. Because there's a ton of reasons why people wouldn't good people wouldn't want to be a politician today. <laughs> yeah, I think people just pushed out of government in general. They yeah. don't want to be in government working in it or kind of leading agencies or in the, in the legislative branch. I think people wholesale have just kind of abandoned it and that the good people don't go into it. I just yeah. think the, the funniest, most obvious area is always in tech. Anything tech related the government does is like, why? Like, and that's why, spoiler for a lot of people, it's like things like the CIA and the NSA, they're not nearly as competent as you may think because the, the talent that yeah. you get, why would you be there? Like yeah. if you're so great, why would you be there? Um, again, you, a lot of it is this national spirit, national. I mean, that's what you do these things for. And that's why actually having China is actually really good because in that sense, it helps these government agencies staff. It gives you an enemy. It gives yeah. the NASA, hey, we want a 10 billion extra dollars to go to the moon because China's landing rovers on Mars and landing on the moon. Right. It's pushing certain things. But again, you got to have an internal vision. You got to have an internal drive. It can't just be like, hey, we finally need to like get our shit together because Russia's here or China's here or whatever. You have to have an own, your own vision. We don't have one. Um, and people don't go into the government to try and get things done or make things better. Or if they do, they get spit out within like a couple of years. If you have real ambition, yeah. real energy, what would you spend a lot of years there for? Yeah, exactly. It's a real thing. It is a conundrum. And I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's also interesting because you know, even even the people who make the legislation, it's not just the agencies that are kind of lacking in this, which terrifies me when it comes to cybersecurity. Like we keep giving the Pentagon all this money for tanks and, and things we'll probably never use, but we could yep. really use a lot more cybersecurity, obviously. Um, but, you know, you listen to these politicians that make the actual legislation or vote on it, we'll say they may not actually write it or anything, but they don't oftentimes seem to understand the most basic things about technology and to be able to make legislation on it or vote on it competently. Yeah. And that's terrifying as well. Well, one of the things since the 1930s, we have all these agencies because they were supposed to possess that expert knowledge. They were supposed to be the place to, right. that possess it. And I think when you have people that don't want to go work, if the experts don't want to work in the expert agencies, they're not experts anymore. Or the expertise is just located elsewhere. Why don't people want to work? Why would someone not want to work for, you know, the CIA versus, you know, some tech company? Is it just salary or do you think it's like, you know, just perception of <laughs> stigma working for the government or the CIA? I mean, I think they also just don't do. I mean, if you're just doing basic regulatory stuff and you're just kind of reading over what got businesses are doing all the time, it depends on the different areas. For sure. It really depends. But you're just not doing the most stimulating work. And often what you're doing, like, let's say a new president comes in, you have a new plan, you work on this thing for three years, gets undercut. Like, <laughs> I, I think that there's this right. lack of continuity. I mean, there's a lot of good things when you have two parties and they fight. 
but in terms of expert agencies that are trying to you know continue programs for a long time it's a huge problem and i think that you just don't get a lot done i think people who are really ambitious or really have a lot of energy you just see you look at private sector you see these massive changes you can be impacting you know a billion people with something you do i think it's just more motivating right right. and i think there were also the compensation's better yeah just be honest and i mean it just goes i think you just go on yeah, and on the for office, the different reasons the atmosphere is better I mean, everything's I think, better I think, yeah exactly <laughs> i think a lot of what government gets is a lot of it's driven by people who want a pension uh, right i mean i think yeah. there's still great pensions and i think that yeah. i mean those that's a good reason to stick it out you see that in local governments here too. Yeah, for you sure. You be a doctor in a different, you know, Cal and associated with the state, city of LA, and you get a great pension yeah. compared to nothing you get in the private sector. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's, mis- it's, it's misaligned for sure. Um, after Sputnik, and there are times when the U.S. has kind of reconfigured some of these things and to try and compete with other countries, and a big law just passed to try and compete with China. I believe it passed. It definitely passed one one House or the Senate. And it's, a, it's basically a hundred billion dollars to try and fix things so we can better compete with China and fix what things eh, I mean it's just kind of tech investment a lot of it's like semiconductor <laughs> gotcha, investments okay. more money for DARPA but we don't actually design we, we don't create new things we just sort of give more money to different things to old things yeah. if that makes sense yeah. yeah we give more money to old things and that doesn't move it um, I started to say does DARPA need more money <laughs> yeah does DARPA need more money I think the, the people should try and stay motivated or excited about just what technology is doing I think it's tough I mean there's obviously the dystopian thing. There's the black mirror thing. There's all this like terrible things that technology is creating. Even the fact that everyone has to go on online dating apps instead of seeing people in the world or whatever it is. There's some weird, terrible aspect. The, the bars will come back. Yeah, the bars will come back. Exactly. No, it's like, but there is this thing like it, it still made the pandemic possible, right? I mean, it still made getting through it possible. You could have Zoom. You could have all this stuff. Like if the pandemic could happen in 1991, that'd probably be a much more terrible event um, for everything. I mean, it was already a really, really terrible event, but we wouldn't have been able to transition so many people to being able to work online. And that's true. I think also history moves by events, like things happen and governments respond like this, this world of like, I think China also convinces people it's the other way where they think, damn China, like you're just, you have a plan, you just execute like for decades. (laughs) It's like, yeah, maybe. That is but the perception. That is the perception, right? But really, it's like things happen and we have to respond. I think something like the pandemic, pushing people to work from home, pushing people to have remote teams, and like in creating new collaboration technologies, all this stuff is accelerating. Yeah. And this is where a lot of the, the change we're going to see is going to happen. I think that what I was saying earlier about the politics muddling, all the political actors are just going to be looking at each other and mimicking what the other people are doing and yeah. you know, getting their script from whoever's giving it to them, and et cetera. Um, meanwhile, real change will probably be happening in these you know, different areas that are, you know, there's a, some edge where something in the real world meets technology, information technology, and you can somehow, you know, produce something new out of that. Yeah, yeah. Elon's working, trying to figure out how to plug something into our brains so we can t- co- communicate telepathically. I mean, he's trying to do everything. I mean, <laughs> someone was just sent me, someone just sent me something about how he's, he's now expanding the tunnels. So like the, he's yeah. doing the tunnel thing. It's like tunnels are now like double size, uh, double barrel tunnels. I think he's an alien. I don't think he's human. You think so? I mean, I don't know how a human could could be focused on drilling tunnels, sending things to Mars, building a whole line of badass cars that are like, you know, are the are the next. They are the future. Yeah. I mean, they, they are. I, I don't know. I mean, he's a 
I don't know. When you listen to him speak, he's he sounds like someone who has a lot going on in his head. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's empty, right? Like that it's would be- definitely not empty. Like he's on another level for sure. Yeah, there's something crazy about him. What's so funny too about Elon Musk is how he's and just not to bring, always bring it back to China. I think it's just kind of interesting. I just did a um, did a video about how this his SpaceX has just just completely undercut everything China is trying to do in yeah. space in a lot of real ways. Like China's putting up space stations, doing all this really cool stuff in space and um, very impressive. But what, what Elon Musk is doing in Texas is just going to rewrite everything. Everything. It's like, it's, like it's, it's a generation, a generation and a half, two generations ahead of what they're trying to do. And all of their plans for the future just got undercut. And that's the problem with these like multi-year plans. It's like, well, what do we do if our plan didn't include computers? Be able to be able to, be able to execute it fairly quickly before it becomes outdated. Yeah, you have to move quick. Yeah. And I think that actually the government, the Chinese government is super responsive. Like they're not representative, but they are very responsive to certain things because they don't want to be, you know, torn through the streets like naked right. or something. So there's a lot of good reason to pay attention to what's going on. Um, but yeah, you can't maintain one of these plans forever. You have to respond to what's going on. I think that's something our government's really getting seems to be worse at maybe these actors are just they're they're not engaged with reality enough you they're know not, what i mean they're not they're often engaged well like you said it's all went away from like actual rational conversation or policy discussion and it's really focused on you know tugging on people's emotions and culture war issues more more so which which is a shame but um yeah i wanted to ask you one more thing that got a lot of attention over during trump's time and it it actually impacted uh, our industry a little bit. And that was these tariffs yeah. that, that, that were in, implemented on China. Like, is, is that something that can like fundamentally actually help level the playing field with China? Or is it true that basically the Americans are the ones paying the tariffs? <laughs> right. So the whole tariff question, I think, well, I mean, it only works if it forces companies here to start producing it, producing those same products, right? That's the point of a tariff, right? You raise the pro the product coming from China, so the U.S. taxpayers pay more, so it creates a demand for a local product to then be created at a cheaper price. There's a lot of things you can do with tariffs. And one that's a big one is sort of to in, encourage domestic manufacturing of whatever, whatever it is you're buying abroad. I mean, the U.S. used that throughout the 19th century. Yeah. Um, one thing that changed with the 1980s with the sort of globalizing of the world is that tariffs don't, I mean, being built somewhere doesn't quite mean the same thing it used to. If you have 30 parts from all over the world, it's it's a bit different. Like what a lot of yeah. what happens in China is really assembly of things that are pieced from all over. And I do think, so the tariffs, the tariffs did have effect. And they did impact a lot of decision-making and they required more subsidies on China's part. And they impacted a lot of the coastal manufacturing regions pretty, pretty harshly. Um, but... What we're seeing now is just we're seeing this broader shift where manufacturing, things are being relocalized. People are starting to, manufacturers are starting to produce where people consume. I think Tesla is a good example of this. They built, they're building a plant in Germany for Europe and they're building a plant and they have a plant in Shanghai for China and they're building a you know, second plant in the US for the US. And that's smart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's actually where a lot of manufacturing will go and just, it also makes you more flexible. So if demand starts to sink in Europe, for example, you there's so many problems. I mean, it really made Tesla more resilient to these supply chain problems too. Even with the semiconductor shortage, it was just it was a lot easier when you had more vertical control. And you can't do that in every industry. Right. So when you were talking about uh, your industry, I think that 
it's specific to to each of them, but this is one of the broader shifts. So a lot of manufacturing is moving back to the US because of changes sort of in inputs. The shale revolution in the US has kind of lowered the cost of, of many key materials. And shale. Shale oil, which is basically the oil they've been uh, pulling gotcha. out of Texas. Yeah. yeah, and it's just, it's reconfiguring some industrial stuff. So you need a lot of chemicals and um, you know, petrochemicals. All this stuff is involved in creating basic things that go into plastics and rubber and everything um, right. that we build. And a lot of that is moving to the U.S. because we've got we've got really cheap uh, oil now. It's just lowered the floor for all of this. So a lot of stuff that made sense to do in China, Vietnam, or whatever. A lot some of that is in different industries moving back to the U.S. But the China thing of just will, will tariffs by themselves cause China to like not have thirty percent of global manufacturing? There's a lot of inbuilt things that, right. that make that happen. When that's I do think that is going to shift, and I think that. The reason it's going to shift is just because of these broader problems. I mean, China's whole relationship with the world is is deteriorating, right? It has these crazy um, <laughs> diplomats. They call they call like wolf warrior diplomats. They basically go around saying we're a big dog on the world stage now. In China, like, yeah, they're crazy. It's it's um, it's actually like comedy. Like if you read the translations of some of their tweets and stuff, it'll be like, dude, like what are you doing going to France and telling them that we're like you know, basically king of the world and stuff? Now it's, it's not endearing them to any country. Uh, but their relationships with different countries are really going down. Interesting. And yeah, yeah. It's a it's a, a major thing. So, so are the relationships poor because of the way their diplomats are handling the situations? They're making or it worse. they're just making it worse? They're making it worse, yeah. The idea is like, you know, like the U.S., let's, you know, top big dog in the world or whatever, right? We don't go to every country. We don't have like the French diplomat saying like, hey, what's up? Why are you guys, why are you so lame? Like, why don't you know we're more important? Like, you don't say things like that, right? You have some measure of decorum or whatever. Right. Um, but China's shifting it and they're, they've just been, they're playing their hand very weakly on this diplomatic front and it kind of is dovetailing with these broader changes. So a lot of inputs, so energy is now costs a lot more in China than it did because like we were saying, it has so much, it's such a large industrial base. You have to, you need the energy, you have to use coal, you have to use everything and it's starting to cost more. And then labor costs have gone up. So you're seeing a lot of manufacturing already starting to leave China, industry-specific stuff. And this, I mean, there's a lot. So often you have these sort of industrial agglomerates. So you'll have like multiple different manufacturers for different parts in one region. So it makes, there's a lot of synergies there. Right. Sort of like that. that's a big way that things happen. So that takes a while to break. Um, but there are a lot of new decisions, and a lot of relocation decisions, a lot of those that are moving out of China and this nationalization of production that we're seeing from the pandemic is accelerating that a lot. And yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't. So China wasn't necessarily chosen as a manufacturing hub because it had a plethora of natural resources that were no. good for it. It was, they're, they're, they're importing all this stuff there. And slave labor and extremely lax regulations. Um, it had dirt, the, basically the world globalized and China said, Hey, you can build anything here. You'll, you'll get it built in a day. You'll have an inexhaustible workforce that's cheaper than anywhere else. You know, we'll yeah. match the price. Yeah. Um, and then you'll have the weakest regulations you can imagine for everything from labor to environmental. It's kind of an offer you can't refuse if you're a business. And I mean, this is the thing. If people want to wonder like the, the good thing about this is that it raised a lot of people out of poverty in China. Sure. The bad thing is like, what, what was, how was Cost, it sold? Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's bad. There's some horrific uh, damage, environmental damage in particular in China. It's pretty horrific. But, but yeah, it w did work to 
to gain this stuff. And the only reason this happened is because you could do this. Like you could originally China would be at war with everyone around it. Yeah. It wouldn't even be able. But if you have a Japan's not going to fight us. The Vietnam we're, we have no problems with. Russia didn't nuke us. Uh, India, we, you know, if you have no problems, then you can kind of just focus on this stuff. And they were able to do that. Yeah. But now those you can't sell that anymore. You can't have the lax regulation and have terrible smog filled you know you can't be the you know they, they have to sell something different to their population right. which right. is more educated more wealthy so you can't make that sell anymore it's changing well that's that's a good question too like i know it's been a while since you've 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 been over there but yeah you know i was gonna go i i actually don't feel comfortable going to china anymore yeah. just based on what i've said i was gonna yeah. go in 2017 but they're basically giving exit bans now. Yeah, I, I, I don't. And know I would not be allowed yeah. uh, out, probably. Yeah. So they would definitely be watching you. <laughs> but do the people that live there, do the citizens in general, do they, do they buy into all of this, and that they're they're supportive of their government, or is it a situation where, you know, they want this better lifestyle, but they don't necessarily want to be, you know, monitored and censored and controlled the way they are? That's a great question. I mean, that's a, that's a very, very, very good question. I love this one question. Um, it's not to, not to repeat that multiple yeah. times, but this is so interesting. What is the cultural sort of psychology around all this that we're seeing, right? From within China? Because that seems to be the thing that could cause real problems for China is if it comes from within. Well, there's there's major tensions. That's a good way to think about it. I think China in general, the people as well as the government don't want chaos. They do not want everything to devolve into the, the Cultural Revolution, for example, in the 1970s. That, that's an example of what no one wants to see happen, but which can happen. And so people are on board. Uh, but there's general, I think what happens with education, with a lot of capitalism, with uh, economic autonomy and social autonomy of people is individualism. You, you do see that. So the current crop of like Chinese millennials, for example, is extremely individualistic in a lot of ways. And you see that for on the on the sort of on a gender sex front, you see that like this is a, a group of um, millennial women that are self-reliant and they're that are not getting married. They're not forced into the traditional structure of Chinese familial life, which right. was which ruled for thousands of years. So that's over and you can't really change it but what is the entire like you're not going to find i think with those individuals there's tensions like they want their privacy they want this they want that but they also know they're not going to get all of it also i mean I think there's often in the west we're told stories about what china is like i mean what the people want but this is kind of an old u.s cold war right. playbook where we say hey the iranian people really <laughs> want right. x and the cia is going to give it to them sort of thing but um no i mean i think the chinese people they know the contradictions and the tensions. They're, they're very, very, very far from stupid, but there's just limitations and constraints on what can, what can they can do. Right. Um, and I think a lot are just, can, you know, they, they know they have to live with it. I mean, the deeper problems are probably just managing the current economic strife. Like the, the, a lot of people are realizing, hey, the era of the, the new tech companies is kind of over. We're just being worked to the bone. The, the sense of opportunity is diminishing. And that's a real big problem because that's what if if things aren't getting better, then all of these intrusive controls start to feel. What what's all this yeah. for, right? If things are, if we're just going to keep everything tamped down, but it's trending down anyway, that's dangerous, and then that actually is where things are going. So that will cause, like you said, like internal tension. It's interesting because I it almost feels like there you know we're kind of 
simultaneously here in the U.S. going through similar things where there's the millennials that are kind of unsettled. They're not don't want the status quo anymore, you know, and they're still, you know, our current leadership's generation, you know, 60, 70, 80 year olds that are running yeah. that are running things in this old mindset. And it's like. It's not obviously as authoritative as what the Chinese government has, but it is interesting to see the the com- correlation or the comparison to like some of the placating that goes on from our political leadership here. You know, we don't actually do anything that's going to create the change, but we'll make sure that we say the right thing or tweet the right tweet or make sure that we you know placate you and give you this little thing that isn't going to move the needle, but it'll make you fine for uh, happy for now. Do you mean individuals are doing that? Like we're all feeling the pressure to sort of say certain things or we're seeing like the government will create a new holiday instead of improving certain things. Well, I think I think, yeah, I mean, I but I think specifically, I guess I was referring to government officials, elected officials. You know, I mean, like what comes to mind is like when the Democrats, you know, kneeled in in D.C. with the Kenta cloths on like, Mm -hmm. you know, let's they're, they're 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 like trying to I feel like check this box and placate these people. But did anything really come out of that? Yeah, you I know? see what you're saying. It's it's sort of, again, the sort of performance media aspect yeah. of things. It's sort of the, it's in the a, foreground. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It seems like both the U.S. government and the Chinese government are kind of trying to do the same thing with completely different styles where China is very like, we have total control. You don't get to say, shut the fuck up, and this is what it's going to be. Yeah. And the U.S. government over here has to play this this perception game with the public to keep them, you know. Yeah, kind a of, weak kind perception of, game, but also kind of just it as— It is weak. Uh, it's, a, it's a weak game. <laughs> it is weak. I mean, the, the, the difference is the game, they're, they're, the hand is so much stronger in China. It's like, yeah. like, for example, let's say you and I were texting about how we didn't like something the government did. It's like, well, all of our texts would disappear— we lose internet yeah. and then someone would appear at our door. Well, that's like with being shadow banned or having something demonetized or pulled yeah. off of the internet, you know, by YouTube. It's like over there, that happened would be the norm. Like yeah, if something goes exactly. up that wasn't approved, it got pulled and you would get probably called in for a, a discussion about yeah, it's it. It's like what we were saying earlier, like the challenges in the U.S., a lot of it is from the private companies, the companies right. that control the platforms. Like right. the, in, the, in China, they're trying to make sure all platforms are under government control. In the U.S., we're more, you know, we're, our problems with having, having what we say removed or anything like that is all coming from typically from private companies. Yeah. And so it's those companies, how they feel forced to respond to the broader culture or the climate or the issues or whatever is raised that's really interesting. Should they have that control over what people say? Probably not. Um, the government, I mean, they probably need, they need to create new laws for this. I mean, they need to fix some yeah. things related to what the internet's done for, for, for free speech. I mean, just, I mean, this podcast itself, it's, We've talked about some things that probably get flagged. <laughs> well, it's like in China, it's, it's like the it good thing here happen. is that we can actually talk. Like we can say for sure. our government's super incompetent. And like that, you know, no, it's funny. Nobody's going to come knocking on our door. Yeah, or, it's or hopefully not. Yeah. If we say the government is useless. Then the, no one, that's not what gets censored. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. It's a very different set of, of things. It's sort of moral in certain ways, sort of things with certain moral valences. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of conflict over what what to do about these problems or these questions. And the government doesn't have an answer. And sort of these corporations have come in to try and give like an intermediate thing about maybe we don't have an answer, but just don't say that. 
And it feels like they, it <laughs> so feels kind of like they pl try to placate the loudest, you know, ten or fifteen people on their percent of people on their platform yeah. too, which is is kind of the the stressful part of it as well. Um, do you think that you know these these platforms need to be treated more like utilities? I mean, like everybody's got access to it, everybody should be able to say whatever they want, and then you know we just people have to be smart and use critical thinking and their mental capacity to disseminate bullshit and, and hateful information. I mean, I prefer more channels of information than fewer. I yeah, think that's, agreed. I think that's a, a key thing. Um, that's a key, that's a key one, but will they be regulated as utilities? You know, I'm never quite sure. I do think what we're seeing is that the, it's not hard to, make audio or send audio around or make videos and send video around. So something like TikTok, for example, which gotten like a brouhaha with the government, um, it's not hard to make something that lets people share small videos with each other. Like right. it's, we're getting to the point where these technologies aren't very impressive. Um, and there's definitely something, you know, I can see a lot of governments, maybe not the US government starting to say, hey, like, all right, you can share media. Here's like, but there's now rules about how it's done. Right. Uh, it's be it's becoming so ubiquitous and easy. I mean, I think that a lot of the things are network effects. It's like these giant companies buy up. Like everyone wanted to buy TikTok because it's like, hey, we just you know, join our our Borg creature. Yeah. Um, but like, what's funny about TikTok is like it, some other company that did exactly the same thing would just come up. It's like there's nothing impressive about it in a way well there was a company that was so when tiktok was going to be banned there was a company that was basically doing about to launch and they raised a bunch of money and then of course tiktok wasn't banned <laughs> yeah it's funny everyone shifted to something else in fact it was uh are you familiar i think it's called triller i think i've heard of that yeah it's, it's like when what it was... they've been doing these fights on these live fights uh streaming fights no i don't know boxing fights yeah. no I, i've heard about the name of it i think though. that's what it's called Something with a T, though, yeah. trill, something like that. Yeah. I did hear about that. No, but the, yeah, it's 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 a question about yeah. what they'll actually uh, do with it. But it does have the sense where a lot of these, they're also identical, especially what I've always thought is like, since 2008, it feels like the main apps in the world have all just been ways to share video or text message or to audio. It's yeah. like, you're just sharing some basic, bits like that's it like literally bits yeah um doesn't seem that impressive anymore so yeah i mean i hope for more real economic like technological change like looking at a country like china the things that would help this country to survive in the future are like major new technologies like capital t technology like mm -hmm. not like another version of like some it thing it's like right you know what i mean like right. new transformation of, of nuclear energy something like that yeah. it's like these are these new, are real new, new energy source well, if we could ever capture a UFO, we figure out what it flies on. You know, then, yeah, we, then we've got a new than, energy source. Probably more likely than fusion energy at this point. <laughs> they've been like, they've been trying to build that donut in France for like decades or something. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always a complicated question. I mean, energy, how do we do that? Nuclear seems like a great, great option until you think about the, the waste and how long it takes it to, we have to store it and come up with something to do with it. There's a place up in Washington state that's, that's, you know, it's polluted everything around it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's old nuclear waste site. So I don't know what the answer is. Maybe Elon will, will save us all. There is something where the, the people have way more faith in someone like Elon Musk or even a Jeff Bezos for different things than anyone in the government. It's pretty hilarious. Oh, for sure. Like it's. I mean, I wouldn't crazy. want Elon making like being the president or making those kind of decisions. But for what he does. 
like, yeah, I think he's going to have like a bigger impact on humanity than any of our political leaders. I just don't think the presidents have as much power as we think. I think we have this either. like we they gave, they gather this like symbolic force. Like we treat them like the old kings or emperors or whatever, and they, you know, we think think of them as father figures and all sorts of weird things. But really, now with a corporate structure, people can do amazing things. Yeah. Like you can create things that the government has no chance of ever ever producing yeah back in the day it was just more competent like in the 1930s um when the, when the new deal was going on you had like all the smartest people in a lot of the the ivy league schools they were all going into government right like, it was like you know wealthy families had their best children you know whatever that means it's like there was actually a push to go into the new expert federal government yeah that era has passed like that yeah. since the 1970s that's been on the way out so yeah the real the real stuff's going to come from somewhere else yeah so we'll we'll see we'll see what happens but what do you think do you think you that any of these major tech platforms will be utilities or something like it i don't know what the right answer is because there's part of me that says you know what you don't need to be on twitter like it's not necessity it's not a necessity yeah but then depending on what you do for a living it might be a necessity yeah. And so, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what the right answer is. I just know that I don't like the thought of some random group of uh, millennials sitting around making censorship decisions on Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube. Right. I, that, that doesn't seem like a good situation. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll figure it out. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Is there, uh, where can people find you? Where you got this podcast, uh, where where can people listen to the podcast and find you online? Sure. So I have a podcast called the China Unraveled podcast. It's got 11 episodes now. It's, you guys might have to wait a little while for a next one. I'm focused, basically I'm editing a book that's going to have this whole thing kind of put together. So I'm focusing on that, but. So the podcast will be, the book will be a a cumulative, there'll be like a podcast version of the book or the book version of a podcast. The book's just like, book's just like its own thing. Uh, And then the the podcast, I started the podcast actually when the pandemic started, I was just saying, oh wow, I got to like tell some people some basic stuff about what's going on and like how things function. So you can sort of figure out how to navigate this and what the Chinese government's doing. So I was doing all that. Uh, But I did a three part series on Hong Kong to give people, it was like an hour, tells people like, the whole history and like where things are going. And I put so much time into it. I was thinking like, damn, like I should just you know get this in, in the book, get that done. Yeah. Cause otherwise these things don't get finished. So there's that. <laughs> and then I got a YouTube page. You can just check it out. Jason Sheftel. And I'm starting to do, I'm getting like requests for just certain Q and A's and certain about certain topics. So I'll probably just yeah. do live stream sort of stuff there. And then yeah, I have a website, uh, jasonsheftel.com. There's some different writings and stuff on there. Lots of about China and yeah. Anyone, anyone who wants to hear more, you can email me too or whatever you want to do, but it was a lot of fun talking right now. Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate you coming in. All right, everyone. Well, thanks again. Uh, Peace, love, and power to the people.